Where is he? We gotta record the show. Chris! Chris, I'm here! I'm here! I'm here! I'm sorry! I'm, I'm here! We can start. The hell have you been? It's already Tuesday. We gotta get digital noise posted. Sorry, brother. House of Cards. That's why you're late? You were watching House of Cards on Netflix? What? No, I, w- I was building a giant house of cards out of my VHS tapes. It toppled over and I was trapped for hours, actually. Are you out of your mind? No, it was fine. It gave me a chance to memorize the plot synopsis for Humanoids from the Deep. From the ocean depths. No, no, stop. Beer! Howdy, howdy, high-def hombres and blue bunnies. Welcome to another electrically stimulating episode of Digital Noise here on oneofus.net. This is the Blu-ray DVD review podcast that is always complete in its insert rest of the joke here. I like it. (laughs) I I apparently have missed something in my notes. We will just skip right over that. (laughs) Insert rest of the joke here. You remember that one? That's a classic. That was a good one. Rim shot when you think of it. Rim I'm your host, Brian Salisbury. My eyeballs are essentially oatmeal at this point, and I am joined by my partner in crime, my good friend, a man who is never afraid to adjust my tracking, Christopher Lawrence Cox. That's true. I just can't get it right, though. Every time I try and look at the good porny parts, it just gets all scrambled. It's it's weird how that happens, <laughs> and, and terrifying at the same time. I wanted to let you know that Digital Noise, just like all of our content here on oneofus.net, is available on iTunes. Just search one of us in the podcast section. You can also follow this show on Twitter. If I could get it out in one breath, oh, at DigiNoiseCast, at D-I-G-I NoiseCast. I'm, I'm like, running uh, running out of breath like I'm some sort of, like, who was the guy that announced The Price is Right for all those years? Bob, Not Bob Barker? Bar- no, 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 the other guy. The come on down guy. That's who I feel today. I don't know who that guy is. All right! It's not Vanna White. So no, it is not. That I don't know. So who cares? If it's not Vanna White, who cares? You do turn a mean letter to your credit, though. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I've, I've always <laughs> thought that about myself. In high school, I was voted most likely to replace Vanna White on Wheel of Fortune. I, I can see that. Yeah. There wasn't much going on at my high school. <laughs> Anyway, uh, I want to let you know you can also become a subscriber to oneofus.net. You can give $1 to $25 every month or just make a one-time donation. And even if you do a monthly uh, donation, you can cancel it any time if something changes. But it is a good way for us to keep the lights on here at oneofus.net and continue bringing you the content that we know you love so much. God, we appreciate it so much. We Please really help do. us. Thank you. Hat in hand. <laughs> Coming we hat don't in mind. hand for all this good and much more to come entertainment. Please become a subscriber or, as you say, a one-time donator. Also, uh, you know, you'll see a bunch of Amazon links on this page. And I got to tell you, I know it seems weird. It seems almost like, wait, how could that be? But it is true. When you click on those links for those movies that we have listed there and you buy that movie, we get a kickback. But that's not all. We don't only get that kickback from Amazon. If you go to that link to buy anything that you go to from Amazon from there, we get a kickback from that item. So, you know, just anytime you're going to buy, I don't care what it is. I don't yeah. care if you're going to buy yourself the complete Harry Potter series or a dildo for your mom or whatever Or it combine is. the two, a Hermione Fleshlight. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably a thing. She's somewhere. 18 now. It's allowed. They're allowed to make that. <laughs> it's not weird. It's a little weird. It's a little weird. It's a little weird. But if you're one of the little weird people that want to buy that, uh, just do so through our links. That would be awesome. Yeah. I bought the uh, Avatar Fleshlight. That's totally normal. Yeah? Yeah. Gross. I'm going to fuck the hell out of those blue bitches. It's so blue. (laughs) 
Ew. Uh, I also, this may be a little odd, but I want to take this opportunity to announce for anyone who has not listened to uh, my other show, Inside the Locker, we're starting our movie elimination tournaments this week. Now, this is a great opportunity for those of you who really care zero for sports to get in on the fun. Because what we're doing is we're essentially deciding the best movie in various categories with an elimination-style tournament, and uh, it, it's going to be a lot of fun. I think you guys will really enjoy it. Even if you don't know the difference between a football and the hole in the ground, because if there's a hole in your football field, you're actually doing something very wrong. I feel like you even saying that sentence makes me lose like understanding of what a hole in the ground is. <laughs> <laughs> Chris is like, don't they use hole in the grounds for golf? Yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. I would not have been like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's time to reach out to the inner sphere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open that most questionable of coffers we call the letter box. You've got mail. The letter box. Thank you, Torgo. Much appreciated. Our first question comes from Neil Kelly, who asks: I just recently saw the Akira Kurosawa movies Yojimbo and Sanjuro. Uh, and enjoyed them very much. What other movies from the director would you recommend? Uh, I'm going to throw one out that I, I don't think it's talked about very much, but it's probably my favorite. Uh, the thing you need to understand about Kurosawa is there's two distinctive Kurosawas. There's Samurai Kurosawa and there's Film Noir, like post-war Film Noir Kurosawa. And one of, like, my favorite of his post-war stuff is a movie called Stray Dog, in which a, a police detective's gun gets stolen and he has to spend the whole movie kind of tracking it down. And it's, it's just, it's wildly inventive and it's, it's so intriguing and, and really suspenseful actually for a, for a noir. And yeah, I, I just like it very much. Uh, you know, I have still yet to see any of those later or, or the noirish ones that mm -hmm. he's done. I've never seen, I've only seen the samurai ones, which I know is a mark against me. But if Bo was here, he'd be furious because he loves the noir ones. He'd be chewing I, his face off. I've always heard that High and Low is considered to be one of the High best ones great. of that High series. High and Low is great. But as far as the, you know, the classic stuff goes, uh, Rashomon is one you really absolutely have to see. And then you'll be like, oh, wow, I've seen a lot of movies that had the same plot. <laughs> yes, you have. Or oh, at least structure, anyway. Uh, oh, also, if you watch the Seven Samurai, you might think, wow, this feels like The Magnificent Seven or Battle Beyond the Stars or any number of other movies that ripped off its plot. Yeah, pretty much. That's been, yeah. Was it, wait, was it Seven Samurai first before Magnificent Seven or vice versa? No, it was Seven Samurai first. Okay. Because Seven, Seven Samurai came out in the 50s. I know Kurosawa had a few films that were remakes of John Ford films, too. Well, that's so the thing is that ways. Seven Samurai is actually a samurai adaptation of a Dashiell Hammett story. So it's like the, the lineage goes back and back and back. It's crazy that where that story actually comes from. And then Star from. Wars is a remake of The Hidden Fortress. What the fuck is happening? It's not. But see, supposedly George Lucas took C3, his ideas for C-3P on R2-D2 came from two sort of bumbling characters yeah. in The Hidden Fortress. Oh, it's totally noticeable. When you watch The Hidden Fortress, you will see the two characters that he modeled C-3P on R2-D2 off of immediately. Yep. But those are some those are some Kurosawa movies you check out. Uh, to be honest with you, you've you've already watched my absolute favorite Kurosawa movie, which is Yojimbo. Yeah, that's mine too. And you know that's a, that's another movie that's been you know kind of transferred into other forms. I mean, if you watch Fistful of Dollars, that's just the spaghetti western version of Yojimbo. There's a lot of Yojimbos. That's true. Yeah, Jumbo Jimbos. Maybe that's why Bo likes it so much. <laughs> Yojimbo. He's he's our new Yojimbo. That's <laughs> It'll be his new nickname, and he shall forever regret the day that we... Yeah, he'll hate us. Yeah. Forever. Yeah. <laughs> Our next question Shows comes... to be involved with us at all. Yeah. But wait, if you think we're done satirizing Bo, wait till you hear our next question. 
<laughs> okay. Uh, this question for me and Hood has nothing to do with Bo. Uh, what uh, what with it being a little over middle? Okay, I can't. Let me let me try this again because <clears throat> this is worded very strangely. With it being a little over the middle. Guys, come on. Form, formulate your questions here. Basically, what he's saying is that we're a little past the middle of Werewolf History Month, which I didn't know was a thing. I don't think it is. Because for me, February is always going to be Black Exploitation History Month. Okay. But apparently, it's also Werewolf History Month, and he wants to know what are your favorite werewolf films. See, the reason that's a bow thing is because you weren't there for the early days of the old show, The Leog, but oh. one of his like catchphrases was, werewolf, werewolf, and... We don't even know what the hell it meant, but it became a kind of a thing. <laughs> where Fair enough. People were like, do it, do it, say werewolf, say, and finally he just swore off and would never say it again and has so far pretty much stuck to that. I like so. how even today we're tying into our origin stories a little bit. Yeah. This is uh, good continuity. Uh, you know, I actually am a big fan of werewolves. I just think there haven't been a lot of great werewolf movies. Uh, there are a few, to be sure. I still remember there was one point uh, I was working at this bar. And it was like late at night on a Sunday, and we're all bored out of our minds. And I developed with my coworkers an elaborate where what if werewolves attack plan that we actually wrote on the back of menus. Okay, here's you're gonna go there. We're gonna take this. We're gonna make this into swords. And you know, that's cool. sort of thing. It's just something you do. Yeah. Yeah. To be fair, the next week I made up an elaborate. Here's what happened if we're forced to uh, make life into a, a musical here at the bar. Good. Good. So, so choreography. It's a lot like the werewolf plan, except that it has choreography. Yeah, and, you know, the best plan is the one that mixes the two, but I'll talk about that later. Y'all want to hear about the movies, and obviously the two best werewolf movies, uh, at least as far as modern day, because certainly the original uh, Lon Chaney Jr., the, the werewolf, is a classic. But uh, modern day, probably the howling and American werewolf in London duke it out for, for the best modern day title of a werewolf film. I think American werewolf in London eases out the howling. Certainly it has its humor is more overt. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just a classic, classic movie. But if you're talking about uh, even newer than that. Like the one that really made me start getting excited about werewolves again was Dog Soldiers. Yeah. Do you remember that? Have you seen that one? Yeah, I have seen that. I actually kind of fall in the minority with a lot of my friends on that one because I'm I'm not a huge fan of the film. That being said, I do like some of the interesting things that it did, some of the uh, groundbreaking things it did with werewolves. So yeah. What about you? Um, that is a good question. It, probably my favorite werewolf in a film is in uh, Monster Squad because it's it's just such a great '80s collaboration of all the universal monsters in one place. Salisbury's got nards. I do, I do. And I and I like that movie quite a bit. Uh I mean you already mentioned American Werewolf in London, which I think is probably far and away the best of any of the werewolf films. It's hard quite to frankly. Beat that one. It's still got the the best looking werewolf transformation seen on film ever. Yeah. And then of course, you know, Ginger Snaps is such a, an innovative take on werewolves and such a really cool sort of parallel about what it means to uh to be a female at that very formidable part of her life and that's I, I thought that was really cool when most women turn into werewolves that yeah when that happens for real because it totally does because everything i see in movies i believe is for real <laughs> actually you're right ginger snaps is great uh i never saw any of the sequels but it was when you watched it it felt like sort of, it was kind of an art house horror mm -hmm. and it was not the sort of film you expected they'd make like five six sequels to yeah but yes they did and and honorable mention to that vignette from trick-or-treat because that was such a great reveal and, and so much fun and i'm actually surprised you didn't mention the underworld films um I like the Underworld films as, as like, it's just, it's guilty pleasure, popcorn fun, especially the fourth one, which is by far the best of the series. Yeah. Uh, the giant werewolf in that one is like, whoa. 
Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. The but, werewolf video game boss. I mean, I, actually, my guilty pleasure werewolf film, though, is probably that I'm always embarrassed to say I like it as much as I do, but I do, is that Jack Nicholson, Michelle Pfeiffer movie, Wolf. Wolf. <laughs> I love that movie, man. Jack Nicholson turning into a werewolf on, like, slowly on screen and getting wolf instincts. You're like, come on, man. This was, this had to happen at some point. At first, you're like, how would anyone notice? Yeah. How would anyone really notice that a transformation had taken place within Jack Nicholson? Oh, man, it's cool. And then the little ending bit with Michelle Pfeiffer being wolfed out, that's pretty funny fucking hot i gotta say uh but other than that yeah just serious black in the harry potter movies and i'm good i yeah i think another really weird one that is sort of a guilty pleasure for me is wolfen from 1981 uh which stars like albert finney and edward james almost and tom noonan didn't that do a lot of the sort of like infrared look through the wolf eyes type stuff yeah yeah i remember enjoying it but i haven't seen it since then so it, it's a very silly movie but if you've ever wanted to watch edward james almost run bare ass across a beach after transforming back into a human from a werewolf this is like probably the third best movie on the list <laughs> okay fair enough yeah that's always, tell you that's what been on my are. bucket list of uh, stuff to see in movies <laughs> well and you nothing, can see his buckets for nothing sure. i like better than some naked young edward james almost running around showing off his deep distressing acne scars he shows off his edward james all of it if oh, you know what yeah. i mean uh almost <laughs> <laughs> well those were the questions thanks for sending them in we're gonna slam close the lid on the letterbox and I think we should waste not another word on anything that isn't the reviews. And as Chris mentioned earlier, we're going to have links for these uh, images and links for all the things we talk about. If you go to Amazon via those links, no matter what you buy, we get a cut of that purchase. So please do that. We really <coughs> appreciate it. And also make sure to leave reviews there for these titles if you choose to buy them and say, hey, I found out about these by listening to this great show on one of us.net uh, digital noise. Oh, this Check one. Check it out. Yeah. No, oh, okay. Yeah, because I don't know why they would list inside the locker. No. Well, yeah, you said great show. So I <laughs> oh, did, I understand know. why that was confusing. <laughs> well, we're going to kick off this week with, uh, I feel like the show Sherlock has a lot of fans out there, has a lot of attention paid to it. So you. let's go ahead and continue that with Sherlock season three. Man, I was so like happy that this finally happened. I mean, after they announced that <laughs> not just... Uh, uh, Martin Freeman, who plays, you know, the Watson character here, Dr. John Watson, but also, uh, Brendan Benedict Cumberbatch were both going to be in the Lord of the Rings films. I was like, that's it for Sherlock. We're yeah, it did seem like the season. death knell. Well, yeah, because with BBC shows, it's not uncommon for shows just to, even if they're really popular, to just end. I mean, sure. they don't have the same, obviously, contractual system that American television has, where you get these actors who are like get huge overnight because of a TV show, but they can't go anywhere. Yeah. They're locked in for like five seasons or so. Well, I mean, you get American shows where the actors just want to get in there and be embedded like ticks for like 10, 11 seasons. And the British are like, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do it as long as the stories still work and then we'll stop. I think, you know, the American system benefits both people and so do the, so does possibly the British system, which te technically has shorter sh seasons anyway. Mm -hmm. It's just I think the American one ultimately is so that these people who are getting a these networks getting a popular show don't have to deal with contract renegotiations, but so often right. to keep people in case that show is a huge hit. But that being said, the guys who do Sherlock, uh, along with Stephen Moffat, who is a showrunner, also of course the showrunner on Doctor Who right now are all in love with doing the show, which is awesome. Whenever you see interviews about it, they're like, I can hardly wait to get back and do more uh, Sherlock episodes. And sure enough, they hurried back and got, I think it was God, it was like a, maybe a year and a half since the end of the last season uh, and got this this season out, which is each season is three episodes, which is to say three movies. I mean, they're Pretty an much. hour and yeah. a half long. So you're watching three sort of Sherlock movies that have a direct continuity. And in many ways, 
I think this may be actually the best season that, that they've done so far of the show, which is good because I thought the second season was a bit of a step down from the first one, partially because their Hound of the Baskervilles adaptation was not top notch. Mm. Uh, but this season makes Sherlock a lot more human. We've already established that Benedict Cumberbatch as Sherlock is Sherlock Holmes, of course, is a, is not just a bit of a sociopath. He is the world. He is the definition in the encyclopedia of sociopath. True. Just with absolute genius, you know, super genius level, level intellect. Uh, but the relationship between he and Martin Freeman, uh, Watson's character is much more explored in here with both. Uh, we know that right from the bat, Watson's getting, has gotten engaged, uh, to be married to a woman who has a sort of, that Sherlock at first reluctantly, but then slowly grudgingly comes to actually respect her own, her intelligence for reasons that become much more interesting as the season goes on. Uh, as well, we saw Sherlock die at the end of the last season. So what the fuck? How do you do another season? The first episode of this or movie, if you will, deals with that so deftly and so amusingly that I had to take my hat off to it, but nothing is quite as good in the series as the second episode, which is my favorite episode of the whole series, which is the wedding of, uh, of John Watson and his wife, uh, where Sherlock is the best man and has no idea how to be a best man. I mean, he knows, he does, he knows that he cares about, Watson, but he can't really quantify it. He doesn't really understand it because those are human emotions. Yeah, exactly, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> and he's trying to figure it out. And it's li clearly the greatest challenge he's ever had was to prepare for writing the speech, <laughs> the best man speech. And the majority of this episode is in the middle of his very awkward best man speech. <laughs> he suddenly realizes that there one of these guests is going to be murdered very shortly, and it's him just rambling through the speech. As his Sherlock mind is going crazy, like analyzing the whole situation. And we're kind of seeing the real situation and the Sherlock vision <laughs> as he's trying to figure out what, what's going to happen here. And it's brilliant. It makes Sherlock more human. It makes him more funny. It makes you feel bad for him, too, because, like I said, he's in previous episodes, he's just very cold here. You get to see that. He being the way he is, he suffers for it as well, uh, and would rather not be that way. And I think that's partially why this is the season, season that I've enjoyed the most so far of the show. Top notch, very, very entertaining stuff. I can hardly wait till the next one, although I fully expect it'll probably be at least another year <laughs> until we see it. Well, I'm glad that you said that about the character and the way it's sort of developing, because I really like the kind of dickish, borderline sociopath Sherlock Holmes that Benedict Cumberbatch plays, but I always wondered, when the diminishing, you know, the diminished returns were going to start coming in for for that character and for that particular portrayal of that character. So to hear they're making him a little bit more human is really intriguing to me. Yeah, and it's a not a easy task. Right now, the shows of the whole smartest guy in the room stuff, as well as movies, is very, you know, de rigueur. It's very popular right now. Yeah. There's, hell, there's two Sherlock Holmes TV shows running as we speak, as well as like Luther and any number of other shows. This is one of the first I felt that really has taken that character and done something really, truly interesting with him on, on expect just specifically with the season in a way of giving him depth that we didn't expect to find, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Really so there's, there's more to the character than you expect. And you did, you didn't even expect to have that come up in the first place. Not really. Not from previous incarnations of Sherlock Holmes. This no. is definitely a new, I mean, I mean, so is elementary for that, that, that matter, although that's more of a procedural uh, drama. 
this is really doing going places that Sherlock Holmes never has before, but nothing feels out of place, at least not for You me. mean America? No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> <laughs> that was my favorite part about elementary. They made this big deal like, Sherlock Holmes is going to England. It's like, yeah, that's where he's from. That's um, Why don't you just, I'm just saying. It shouldn't be a gimmick. He's just going back to the place he came from. I've always been with that when I heard that was going to be the second season. I was like, here's a suggestion. Have him stay there. Yeah, no kidding. It's like when, okay, so it's like Critter's... I think it's Critters 4 where they go to space, and I'm like, I understand that's a common trope within horror movie franchises, but the Critters came from space, so it's not really that big of a leap. Critters 4 go back to space. Yeah, or Critters, if it was like Critters underwater, then be like, okay, that's cool, because that's something new. Or on ice or lava level. Yeah, Yeah. ice or lava level. (laughs) (laughs) Mario World 3. Yeah. Anywho, that is going to bring us to our discussion of The Americans Season 1, which is the, uh, the FX series. About those pesky Russians. Man, the, the, the period piece shows are very big right now, although I can't, is this, are there any others that take place in the mid 80s? Hmm. I couldn't think of one off the only one. The only ones I could think of were actually made in the mid 80s, so right. no. <laughs> no. Those would not count as period pieces. No, not at all. Uh, yeah, this is, was, this was FX, right? Yes, yes, it was. Doing it good yet again. Like FX has got so many good shows, and this is one I think past by a lot of people on the way. Like, I don't think it got really strong ratings right off the bat, but it's it's got good enough to get brought back for a second season, which is, you know, pretty... That's normal procedure for FX. Yeah, I remember seeing promos for this show and thinking, eh, I'm not so sure. And then yeah. hearing a, a couple of people that we trust going, no, you gotta... You gotta check it out. And well, sure Martin enough. was raving about it. And Martin is correct. Uh, this show is, is fucking outstanding. I really, really enjoy this. And there's a lot of different, okay, so the basic premise here is that you have this, this sort of all American suburban couple and their two kids. The only thing that's kind of weird about this couple is that they're actually Soviet sleeper agents or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so not they're the, not the kind like in the comic books or the Manchurian candidate where they don't know their agents. No, no, no. Yeah. They, they, they've been there for 20 years. They, they were forced to get married, form a family. And the whole time they're just waiting for orders. Yeah. So they're, they're transmitting, uh, you know, whatever they find out back and forth to, uh, the Kremlin and they're, they're adept at disguises. They've been specially trained in martial arts and, and all kinds of weaponry. They're spies. They're spies. But it's, it's one of those, it's, it's that thing that, you know, is very popular right now in television, which is the, the, the double life characters, the sort of anti-heroes with, with shady backgrounds and like living this, this, uh, duality. And that might be why I like it so much is because I, I kind of came across it as Breaking Bad has exited my life, and this is kind of fills a certain amount of that void. It's like, oh, more characters I'm not supposed to like, but I do, and I spend every waking moment hoping they don't get caught, even though they really should get caught. Yeah. No, I, you know, it's funny because you couldn't, obviously could not have made the show like 20 years ago. Uh, no. <laughs> we're at that point now, we actually look back at the Cold War with some amount of like, you know, I don't know about nostalgia, but, you know, kitsch. Yeah. And, and this is right in the middle of it, like, where Americans and Russians, they hated each other. Yeah, this is during the Reagan administration. This is during the Rambo years. Yeah, the Rambo years. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Carrie Russell plays the the wife, Elizabeth Jennings. We've, of course, seen her in a lot in the past, but never this type of role. Yeah. It's kind of an odd choice to cast her in, and I thought kind of a gutsy choice. But she really pulls it off. Definitely. As well as Matthew Reese, uh, who I wasn't – apparently he's been in a bunch of other stuff, but I wasn't that familiar with his work. I thought he was the guy from Nip Tuck, but I was definitely Yeah, you wrong. thought he was uh, Julian McMahon. Yeah, Dr. Dim. <laughs> but I think one of the key things that make, this, make the show uh, keep functioning is that while they're having to go on all these missions – 
that you realize that these two, they're, I mean, it's been a sham marriage. They, yeah. they got married and had kids because they were told to, but they've reached that point where Matthew Reese's character is like, look, I feel like I genuinely love you. I think of you as genuinely my wife at this point, and I feel like there's no, why aren't we taking this seriously? We have kids together. And Gary Russell is kind of slowly coming around to this way of thinking with them, which is difficult considering their job often, uh, consists of them going and fucking other people as part of the job. Yeah. I mean, they know that. There's never any issue with that. No yeah. one's ever upset about that. Uh, but it creates this weird sort of back and forth. You know, it's it has all the sex and betrayal you'd ever want to see on a show like this, but it's odd that most of the betrayal is like, well, okay, it's just work. What are you going to do? Yeah, no, it, it is <laughs> interesting in that way. And I like the fact that it deals with a lot of the drama that you would see in a in a show about a married couple, but it, it has this interesting way into it. It's sort of a, a weird, almost like a Trojan horse where you think it's going to be one thing. And then you get in and you're like, Oh, they're dealing with a lot of the same emotions that you see in a married couple on television, but they're just coming at it from a completely different perspective. Uh, you've also got Noah Emmerich who plays an FBI agent. Who's their next door neighbor uh -oh. who uh, has problems of his own at home because he's never there. And he's a real, you know, he works really hard so much so that his new boss played by Richard Thomas, who we haven't seen for a while. <laughs> Good going, John boy. Uh, is a supervisor <laughs> doing a great job of being kind of a dick supervisor has kind of taken him under his wing is like, Hey, you're my number two guy. The problem is, is that he's got a mole inside the Russian embassy uh, played by Annette Mah Mahendru uh, as Nina. Who, so gorgeous. Who's just, yeah, she's just gorgeous. But they have this slowly building thing that yeah. seems to be going on, a heat that's building between them. And you're not really supposed to fuck your your uh, your mole. A, a, a spark ski, as, as you might say. Uh, if I have a problem with this series, it's really actually, despite the fact she's, she's gorgeous, is with her. I'm, I just don't think she's a totally great actress. Um... And I know that she's like half Russian, half Afghanistan, but I have no idea why that means that her Russian accent slips every other line completely and she sounds hmm. like she's from L.A. <laughs> it's funny. I guess I, I didn't notice that. I, I just kept smacking me in the face. I was like, okay, she speaks a bunch of different languages, but I don't know. Right, but you've hired plenty of Russian girls to smack you in the face. Oh, well, yeah, of course. but Like on a daily basis. But I have tried and tried and I'm not getting an answer from her agent, so fuck her. <laughs> Yeah, this show is – It's. I also like how they tie in actual events from you know the history of the Cold War and what that means. I think my favorite was uh, – this is not a spoiler because it's history uh, – the day that Reagan was shot and everything that kind of happens to these two. and Because and, the Kremlin, just like the states, we didn't know what was going on when it first happened. So just sort of the orders that they get from Moscow and the things that they're preparing to do are terrifying. And, it, and even as you watch this – as an American watching this show, thinking to yourself, well, one, I know how this turns out, and two, I shouldn't be rooting for the the Russians trying to infiltrate and take over America. However, at every step of the way, you're just like, don't get caught, don't get caught. don't." It's, it's really tense, and, and I have to applaud them for and that. And in retrospect, looking back at that period, the Americans were acting like just as big dicks. No, 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 absolutely. Were, I'm just so. saying that, you know, uh, jingoistically, like we yeah. should be rooting for the Americans to catch these quote-unquote Americans, but frankly – I am so pulled in by these two characters and I'm so drawn to them and I, I'm so captivated by their relationships and, and the kind of missions that they undertake that I end up siding with them, which is, again, just a, a feather in the cap of this series. Yeah, it's it seems almost like an experiment that's been continually building over television. I mean, hell, we have a popular show from the viewpoint of a serial killer for seven seasons. That's true. Sakes. That's true. Uh, but with that idea that you can have any character be the character you're, you're – 
you know, your audience roots for as long as they're the main characters. You can, they can be as reprehensible as possible, but if we're following their story from their point of view, largely people are going to root for them. I mean, I, I exhibit a breaking bad, Yeah, you know, it's, it's fascinating, but it's, it's also kind of scary when you look at say, like in breaking bad, how many people got mad at Skylar when you're like, She's being completely reasonable. Yeah. You guys don't see what's going on inside your own brains. That you're, <laughs> you're like rooting so hard for the main character by instinct because he's the one the story is being told to. It doesn't occur to you to try and contextualize it for what's actually happening. That's true. On the other hand, Skylar's a bitch. <laughs> no, she's not. <laughs> uh, I'm be, I'll be curious to see what happens if the show ends up starting to go that way. It feels like if they did it with anyone, it would be with Noah Emmerich. But his character, while they keep telling you he's competent, you always get that feeling he's kind of bumbling. A little bit. Yeah. Well, it, not so much bumbling as, as he's not – He, I feel like he is the kind of agent who's better at the undercover stuff because they talk about all these other – things that he was doing before he got this assignment, like infiltrating the uh, Ku Klux Klan at one point. Yeah. Like, I feel like that's really his forte, and what he's doing right now is is almost like, based on what he was doing before, it's the equivalent of doing, all, like, you know, desk work. Yeah, he was all in before, and now he is is forced to keep a distance, and yeah. he ain't good at keeping He went distance. from being an operative to being a handler. Yeah. And that that's a huge transition. Yeah, and probably a pay raise. Yeah, yeah. more than likely. But I, I feel like he's so good at being an operative that he's adjusting every step of the way to just being a handler. But I still don't feel even near the amount of sympathy or attention to him that I do for the main yeah. characters, despite and the fact, as you said, by all means, we shouldn't be rooting for them. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think that, again, I think that's just uh, the power of the writing of this show and the performances yeah. of the two leads. It is very well done. And I look forward to seeing what's going to happen with uh, the next season. Which I, love, I believe it's already started. I, I think it has to. I love the opening, by the way, of this show oh, so good. with its really subtly subversive uh, sort of juxtaposition of imagery where it'll show like, uh, uh, you know, like it'll show some iconic American imagery like Santa Claus or, you know, like playing space invaders on your, on your Atari. And then it'll immediately hit you with an image from, from Russian culture. Like, so we get Santa Claus and all of a sudden here's a picture of, uh, uh, not Stalin, but, uh, Karl Marx with the big bushy beard. And it's like, you see the comparison there and they go straight from the image of playing space invaders to actual like nuclear war. And it's, it's right. really cool the way they line those images up. Uh, the, the one thing I will say as well with the series, that I was kind of really happy, about they did a lot of shows that have done period pieces feel the need to constantly smack you in the face with reminders of that period. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to go play Pac-Man now. Yeah. The show avoids that completely. Yeah. It's like some episodes you're like, wait, is this in the 80s? I mean, only the hairstyles and the clothes remind you of points. Like, I, I oh, forgot. Yeah, Watching the first episode, I completely forgot for a few minutes that it was the 80s because yeah. you're right. They don't – They don't they, feel a need to hammer you over the head with it except it's not for a they when it's on. relevant news events yeah. that, that would affect the Russians as well as the Americans. They don't hit you over the, ham over the head with a hammer or a sickle uh, trying to drive that point home. Uh, <laughs> Next movie. Next movie. Oh, well, Soviet. Uh, we're going to move on from the American season one to the returned season one. Yeah, this is a show that shouldn't exist because it's a <laughs> French genre show. Like, we're like, the French even have genre things i i mean i know there was like they've been getting into horror movies more and more lately but doing a television show that's genre i don't know what to make of that but my god i guess i don't know enough about french tv one way or the other <laughs> it just there isn't a lot of this type of stuff in general it's not really the thing you see them usually doing but uh this is a adaptation apparently of a 2004 film called they came back which i did not see which uh which also titled Le, les revenants les revenants 
Uh, it's won an international Emmy for best drama series. It's won awards all over the world in different countries where it's aired. Just recently has it been airing here. Uh, and this first season available on DVD or Blu-ray has convinced me I'm totally sold. And I didn't really know what to think of it at first. Because the idea here, the small mountain town where certain dead people over the space of, you know, people who've died over the space of decades suddenly come back, don't remember dying, like have no idea how they got, you know, they don't remember any time having passed. Mm-hmm. Like the first one we see is the the younger daughter of a set of twins, or not younger, but a set of twins, one of them who had died in a bus accident years ago, who just comes home and is like, starts going through the refrigerator to make lunch. <laughs> um hi yeah um, what's going on so it you know i mean they're not they they were selling this kind of like a zombie show and it's not for most of it it's like a it it's a mystery and it resembles more than anything twin peaks quite frankly and i think twin peaks fans are going to love the shit out of this this doesn't have the camp or any camp really at all the way peaks did uh and considerably played down humor but it's got that same level of building mystery where every episode is just little hints and pieces. And it's not as simple of, hey, there's just back and a simple answer to the mystery. It keeps adding more and more strange shit that's going on, like a dam that's slowly losing water and no one knows why. And finding out that there was a city there beforehand, before the city that's there now, that was flooded by that dam and lots of people died like decades ago there. What does that mean? Why are animals killing themselves jumping into this lake? What is the deal with this little boy who's been appearing as well as one of the dead, but seems to be more aware than anyone else of what actually happened to the point that he's actually discovered that they can't die. What's happening? Dear God, what's happening? Tell us. One point just jumps off the top of a building just for the fuck of it. You know, just to do it, like the way a little kid would like explore once he knows he can he can't be hurt. See, I've been encouraging little kids to do that forever. Yeah, it and, doesn't work out. And in this show, no one has a problem with it. Whatever. But there's really dark stuff going on too. Like one of the people who comes back was a serial killer uh, who was previously murdered by his own brother, who had found out basically that he was a killer and was like he didn't know what else to do at that point, so had t- taken his life. But now he's back and. The brother who had spent years and years of guilt over it now is in kind of an awkward position. Yeah. Uh, the two twins, like I said, the one's now older. The one, the other one is the age she was when she died. That's going to be awkward. A little bit. <laughs> A little awkward. And it really builds into something quite fascinating, quite all by itself, quite hard to compare to anything else. Like I said, Twin Peaks, but not really Twin Peaks either. <laughs> I'm it, This is eight episodes, and unfortunately, and it ends on one, it, it builds to and ends on a pretty serious cliffhanger. Unfortunately, you'll have to wait till the end of 2014 to see the next episode. Shenanigans. Apparently. Shenanigans, seriously. And I was a little freaked out when I read the, the liner notes for this thing, which kept... Uh, insinuating and this may have come out before they even announced there was going to be another season Mm -hmm. uh keeps insinuating yes but you know the mysteries that are left unsolved that's kind of the point it's just like life and death we don't we're never going to know any of the answers i'm like i swear to god if this is one of those shows that's going to cop out as a philosophical treatise on on death then fuck you i'm just going to say this and it may be an unpopular opinion but that's such a fucking french thing to say (laughs) I'm so like, oh, there's no way to know. It's alive and dead. We don't. There's nothing we really know. Isn't that just like life? <sighs> all the little kids that come back from the dead, we let them all smoke. Does that upset you? There is a few kids smoking. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I 
I gotta say, I watched a couple episodes that was unfortunately all I had time for because this is something that uh, you got sent that you were recommending. So I checked out a couple episodes, and you know, obviously, I didn't get into it enough to really know what was going on. But one thing that did strike me in the early episodes is how little this is played for the eerie factor. And by that, I mean it's not played as most traditional ghost fiction is. No, like it's not like a ooh kind of thing. It's it's more of like the dramatic consequences of uh, a family being reunited by supernatural means. And I kind of dug that about it. I kind of, I kind of dug that it wasn't what I was expecting, even though I didn't know what to expect. And I guess. It, it does definitely get creepier as it goes along, but mm-hmm. not in any sort of way you'd expect or have seen before. In fact, the things that I kept referring, seeing people refer to this as a zombie show, I'm like, I don't think you can really call them zombies. They're not zombies any more than they're ghosts. But there's stuff that happens later on in this in this season that will make you go, okay, now I'm starting to see where the zombie thing comes from. <laughs> and in fact, when it gets to the final episode, which is called the Horde, <laughs> you know, the, that, oh, so they all just go to the mall. Yeah, pretty that's much. what happens. No, okay. no, no, no. That's 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 a, a George Romero film. <laughs> it's it's never what you expect it to be. The show, quite frankly, and I I really am enjoying it. I'm just like I said, my big fear is they're going to try. They they're building up all these very specific things as part of this mystery. My biggest fear they're just going to go. Ah, oh, we don't need to explain that. And I want to go. Here's Lost. <laughs> Here are the responses to the end of Lost. Resolutions are so cliche. <laughs> I'm just saying. Well, we will return to the return once we see the next season and see if that in fact happens. If there is an ending or if it just gets fucking French. Yeah. That being said. So far, it's great and gorgeous to watch. Cinematography is amazing. Yeah, it was really show. cool. Uh, from playing, there, I'm sorry, music by Mogwai as well. Oh, kick ass. Which is terrific. I like Mogwai. Yeah. We're going to move on from there to All is Lost. It's all lost. Why do we keep doing this show? It's just pointless. Come back. Come back to us, Brian. Sorry. <clears throat> it's Robert Redford. Let me do a shot All here. is not lost. Oh, okay. Uh, all is lost. Yeah, this is obviously one of the kind of the award, what they call award season bait from last year. Uh, it is a story of a man who I I, I don't know the full like I, this is based on a true story as far as I understand it. Is, is that it? correct? Oh, I thought it was. Am I wrong about that? I'm I might not, be wrong about I'm that. I'm not sure if it, I'm not sure if it was actually. But essentially, Maybe we have a character was. who's trying to sail around the world. Uh, he's he's on this uh, small sailboat by himself, and it's you know right at the beginning of the film something goes wrong. And it's it's starting to look more and more like he's going to lose the boat. Now it doesn't happen all at once, which is kind of interesting. It's one of those things where something happens, he deals with it, he thinks it's fixed. Something else happens, he deals with it. He's very calm and collected about everything that happens, even as like it becomes more and more clear that the boat is going to sink. Which I thought was the the thing about this movie that that worried me is anytime there's a movie where you have one actor carrying the entire thing yeah even if it's Robert Redford. even if it's a great actor like that's a really dangerous proposition yeah I, I I have to say that Redford knocks it out of the park and the way that he does that is he knows exactly he, he manages the emotionality of this character so well he's very economical with what he actually shows because when you think about it there's no reason for him to get super hyper emotional when he's by himself well he's also an incredibly rational person. Right. I mean, he is extremely competent sailor. He has a series of like more and more, what the fuck, God, situations that come across as he's out in his boat at sea. And he continues to make rational, smart decisions all the way through. So it's hard not to get more and more involved with this as you actually watch what feels like almost like sort of a, 
how-to guide at first of like to survive at sea if this happens done in a very taut and quickly moving manner yeah. but things get worse and worse and worse and by the time he's actually you know cursing at the skies you're with him 100% right because you've spent most of the movie oddly enough while he's been so calm about it it's almost like that tension is being transferred to the audience we're not getting a, the cathartic feeling of seeing him start screaming about everything that goes wrong. He's so calm and collected about it. We're freaking out. We're panicking because we wouldn't know what to do in that situation. So it's almost like we're compensating for his lack of, of panic. And I think that's what makes it so tense. Yeah, this is basically a, a, a smarter version of, of Deep Water, I guess it was called. Was that it? When with the, oh, yeah, the where they're two, stranded. Two guys, two people in the middle of the ocean with sharks around. A much smarter version of that. But yeah. that was still a fun movie and it still drew you in with getting involved despite the fact there's only two characters. Uh, this in the same way, except the character isn't an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> At all. We actually don't know anything about him. No, not really. I mean, just that he's a guy who enjoys sailing by himself. He's an older guy, probably well off, mm -hmm. uh, who, who this is his thing. He likes going off sailing. Not yeah. not something you can say, stupid guy. People do that. That's not weird. And that's the thing is I'm assuming he was trying to sail around the world just based on where they say this takes place. But we literally know nothing about why he's out there, where he came from, what his aim was. We just know it's a guy in a boat in the middle of the ocean yeah uh and you don't need to know anymore than you that. really don't anything more than that would just be it would just be you know fat trimmings there's no yeah. reason for it in the story it's enough that by the end of it you will be rooting for him and on the edge of your seat and really wrapped up in what happens you know it's funny i know a lot of people who came out of this mad at the end because it's a little vague like it's make your own decision to some degree See, I, don't, what I don't feel like it is that vague i feel like they just don't they don't push it all the way to the final note, but they give you everything you need to know exactly what fucking happens at the end of this but movie. But you can't tell me that that ending couldn't be easily interpreted as something else entirely. Yeah, I, I mean, you could interpret it that way, but I feel like that would be that would be that would be a, a, a stretch. I think. I mean, it's it's possible, but I think that would be the stretch explanation. I feel like it's completely clear. So I, I guess what I'm saying is, I don't think it's that vague as okay. to what happens. See, at that's the end. just where we're going to differ on this because yeah. I found it to be so not vague as to be equally balanced at taking it completely at face value or take it as visual metaphor. Sure. So, I mean, I, I can see how for some people who saw it as that, that not vague went, were upset by that. They're like going, I want a movie to tell me what happened for me. I thought it just made it that much more beautiful. Well, I mean, you know, whichever side of the fence we fall on, I mean, yeah. the, the, the the point is that there's only two possible explanations for this ending. So either way, you know, whether you, you, you go along with the way Chris interprets it or the way I interpret it, that's still an ending. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, those are the only two possibilities. I don't even feel like no matter which side of the fence you fall on, that's a vague ending. I, I, I call it vague. Be well, not vague is not the right word, but but like uh, very much uh, a uh, – uh, what the hell's the name of the Leonardo DiCaprio uh, – film with a spinning top uh, oh inception inception yeah, yeah, it's yeah. kind of an inception it's ending. a spinning top like, okay. you know it's it is a spinning top because ultimately it, it it is at least as if you saw it as i did which is that there's equal chances either either one of these things could be true you it was designed to make you the audience decide what you think happened to this character like i yeah. said maybe not vague but there's two ways the story open for interpretation open for interpretation now, this is by jc chandor who recently did a margin call in 2011 yeah. a really fun movie i enjoyed quite a bit but didn't get as much attention as I would have expected. Uh, but I would say All is Lost is a big step up for him as well. Oh, it's, a, I mean, just the undertaking alone. I mean, this yeah. is not something like, you know, he wrote Margin Call, but if I'm not mistaken, wasn't this his, his directorial debut or did he also direct Margin Call? 
Because uh, I feel like he was only the uh, the screenwriter on Margin Call. No, I'm wrong. He directed as well. Okay. In any event, this is a, a young filmmaker, a young director, and to basically take on a project where you have one actor who is carrying the entire weight of your story, your movie lives and dies on on the strength of that lead actor's performance. That's not only a, a I mean, that's not only a challenge for the actor. That's a challenge for the person directing that one actor. Oh, I was going to say to I, carry the whole film. I think it's even more of a challenge for the director than it is for the actor in this case. Uh, I mean, a single man show like this is a huge challenge to undertake, even with Redford. Mm-hmm. And I think, quite frankly, as good as Redford is, his the strength of his performance is not the thing that you're going to keep remembering about this film. Yeah, you know, it's going to be how this director manages to keep you with it, how you're never bored, how there's no, there's never a feeling like, wow, they didn't need that scene. Everything makes sense. Everything's essential towards building you to mm. the ultimate point. It, that's funny, too, because I'm sure a lot of people will avoid this thinking, well, it's going to be boring one guy, the Not whole movie. at all. Frankly, when it got to the end, I was surprised it was already there. I was yeah. like, shit, we're already at the end? Yeah, I was you, on the edge of my seat. Yeah, and you look back and you're like, wait, was that like a half an hour? No, 106 minutes. Crazy. Went by like that. It really did. Yeah. And also, it, it, this is not intentional at all, but I did like the fact that you could put this movie in the same uh, storyline as Captain Phillips, if you really think <laughs> about it. And that tickled me quite a bit. But yeah, really great movie. Uh, if nothing else, it'll give you new appreciation for that Christopher Cross song about sailing. So, oh boy! If nothing else, I'm just saying, if you really wanna, if you really wanna get to the silver lining of a film that maybe you don't like, that really takes me away. All right. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, Do that it. that joke is lost. So it's why nice. don't we move on to how I live now? This how, is how I live now, making puns with now? you. Yeah, we sit around, we record making puns, hoping out there in the ether sphere someone is actually listening and not. <laughs> considering suicide because of the are you there audience it's us digital noise (laughs) oh how frightening (laughs) you just cast us as as god yes (laughs) Uh, maybe uh, this is directed by kevin mcdonald who has done a lot of films you know one day in september state of play the last king of scotland love that movie. touching the void and the documentary marley all of which for my money were great movies uh and how I Live Now, fortunately, is no exception. Now, I I'd heard so I talked to some people early on that I kind of had avoided seeing a screening for this because they told me, eh, it's kind of dull. I thought this was absolutely wonderful, even though it's one of those movies that halfway through it does such a huge tonal shift and becomes a completely different kind of movie. <laughs> but I guess because I had seen the trailer and I was, you know, new to expect it, uh, Cersei Ronan plays Daisy, a troubled young teenager from New York City. She's got mild anorexia. She's got phobias. She's got, I mean, she's basically bipolar. And we hear a lot of her internal dialogue going on of like one half of her mind telling her, you're no good, you're shit, you're ugly. And the other half saying, no, remember your mantras. Here's what you do when you start feeling this way, which is actually a pretty fascinating way of detailing the way that some of these people who've had help try to fight their way through the world. Well, she's been brought out to the English countryside of the summer to stay with some British cousins out there. Uh, two, uh, boys, one slightly older than her, Edmund, one younger, Isaac, and a very young girl named Piper. Uh, the mother of this family, the only one, uh, there is no dad there, is very busy with government, with the, her government job. She's rarely there. I, in fact, has to leave at one point early on. And we keep seeing hints that there's a bunch of bad shit going on. Like Paris has been bombed by terrorists. There's a bunch of, you know, war seems imminent with whoever. They never really say who it is. And the first half of this film, despite those little tinges of that in the background, is really kind of this idyllic movie as 
uh, Daisy slowly kind of gets over her, sh- gets, gets her shell broken mm-hmm. and starts to learn how to truly enjoy herself and trust people with this, you know, di- con- distant family that she genuinely starts to find kinship with, as especially with Edmund, the oldest cousin, which is one of those I was going, maybe they just, maybe they meant to say second cousin at some point because they totally hook up. <laughs> but, uh, or maybe it just in Britain, it doesn't matter as much. I don't know. <laughs> Well, I mean, I was going to say I don't think so, but then I remembered the royal family, and I was like, oh, well, yeah, hold on. I, I don't know. It's a bad idea when cousins marry. Yeah. Well, even though uh, recently I saw a thing, Scientific Magazine, saying genetically it's com- it's completely harmless, apparently. Again, I will point you to the royal family as evidence of the contrary. <laughs> yeah, right. Although I think they married a little closer than cousin. <laughs> at the uh, but all this is interrupted, this, this idyllic, beautiful country – summer where she's finally learning how to be human and how to enjoy herself when war breaks out big time london is bombed and totally destroyed soldiers start showing up and saying i'm sorry you can't stay here they drag the the boys off to train to be soldiers because apparently they're enemy soldiers all over the place and drag the girls off to another part of the the countryside to stay with uh, stay with someone who's taking care of children basically younger children and women Everything goes wrong even there. The war appears to be something that the uh, England is losing. And Saoirse Ronan is forced to take her, her, the younger girl with her and cross the countryside trying to get back to the house they all were originally staying at because she, that's where when they broke apart, Edmund, the, the older cousin, had said, meet me back here one way or the other. And turns into kind of like a post-apocalyptic adventure story as Saoirse is learning to be responsible for someone else other than just herself. Hmm. And quite frankly... I was really drawn to this. Yeah, she's a difficult character to like at first because she's so into herself. She's so egocentric in her depression, which sometimes people are very depressed can be. They just bite at anyone who comes anywhere near them. They're not interested in anybody else's shit but their own. Some people, you know, I'm certainly not making a blanket statement about people with depression, but she's one of those. And you do see early on in the film you root for for that to melt around her. You see that there's a good person in there. And then, of course, you know, I mean, of course you're going to root for whoever's surviving a post-apocalyptic scenario. So this is a beautifully filmed movie. It's a beautifully acted film. It does a lot of things I really wouldn't have expected to do. It gets really fucking dark at points. But wow. just damn good stuff. Enjoyed the hell out of this. I, I you know, I, I know it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. See, because it's in England. No, I get it. No, that was very good. Was very good. <laughs> but for me, it's one of those I probably will revisit again, if for no other reason, just for the sheer beauty of how the thing was filmed and the the way it breaks that up with a very realistic seeming and frightening look at what it would be like to be in a country while it was being invaded like this. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good stuff. Few deleted scenes and making of interviews behind the scenes, uh, a bunch of extras on this. So this is a solid Magnolia release and I do highly recommend it. Excellent. Well, right on. I will add this to my to watch pile. In the meantime, why don't we talk about this week's Scream Factory release, which is Darkman. I'm so excited that, that Darkman is in the Scream Factory. I can't even tell you. Um, so if you're not familiar with Darkman, this was, Essentially, Sam Raimi, who in 1990 was still, you know, that guy that does the Evil Dead movies, <laughs> deciding that he wanted to do, now get this, see if you can follow me here, a superhero movie. And people going, I don't, I don't know, I'm not 
not so sure about that. He and was it, trying to get rights to the Shadow. Yes, and when, Batman. Yes, which <laughs> both of, both of those things are abundantly clear. If uh, you know, you look at the costuming and sort of the the darker edges to this character, you can see that. Also, the fact that he hired Danny Elfman to do the score is a pretty good indication that he wanted to do a Batman movie. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Sam Raimi uh, co-writes and directs this movie in which Liam Neeson plays Dr. Peyton Westlake, who is a scientist who is uh, kind of a leader in the field of, I don't even know what you would call it, like sort of making fake skin. to Yeah, like for people who have been burned. Yeah. Like synthetic skin. Synthetic skin, People actually do. That is a real thing now. (laughs) Yeah, no, I just don't know what the word for it is. That's absolutely a real thing. And in fact, when you watch this movie, one of the really crazy things is that the equipment he's using looks exactly like the actual 3D printers that exist now. My God, so, Sam Raimi is prescient. He really is. Let's, like you watch this hope movie, not too prescient. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you watch this movie and you're like, oh, actually, it, it even functions in the same way as a 3D printer. It's bizarre. But anyway, so what happens is Liam Neeson is uh, dating a, a lawyer played by Francis McDormand, who gets a hold of a, a document that would indict a, a local gangster, uh, Robert Durant, who's played by Larry Drake. So they come looking for the document at the laboratory. They they end up torturing and blowing up the lab to kill Peyton Westlake. Well, he doesn't exactly die so much as he just gets burns pretty much all over his body. And he becomes sort of this, this monster who's kind of stalking the night. And he's uh, rejected by his girlfriend when she sees him because she doesn't know it's him. And so he retreats into the darkness and he finds a way to make – to basically take these synthetic, uh, the synthetic skin experiments he was doing and make like masks of people. So it becomes like this weird mission impossible element. Or even the shadow once again, he yeah. used to do the, who had very much that same sort of constantly wearing fake masks. Even Batman used to do that in the comics. Right, right, right. In the movie. So, so that's going on. And it's, it's really just a, a movie that from there plays with a lot of superhero tropes before they were actually before they were tropes. And the, <laughs> the really True. weird thing about, Dark Man is that one of the side effects of his accident is that his emotions are unstable. Yeah. So at any given point, he'll fly into a rage or become one of the weepiest superheroes you have <laughs> ever fucking seen. Oh, yeah. And he also can't feel pain. That's yes. kind of his superpower is that his nerve for the, the I don't know, spinothalmic what happens uh, is that track they, nerve. Yeah, they find him uh, They, they when he, he basically is discovered by, you know, the police and they don't know who he is. So they take him to a hospital. First of all, I don't know what the fuck is going on in this burn ward, but everybody's spinning. They have everybody up on these contraptions where their beds are just spinning all the time. And they explain every other part of their treatment, including severing the nerves so they can't feel all the pain from the burns. But they never explain why people are spinning. Or the part, why is there a watermelon there? I don't know. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> it's it's bizarre. Uh, but it's it's... It's, you know, it's, it's very campy. I mean, it's, is the best word to describe this movie. There's a lot of things that work, like, on a legitimate superhero movie, uh, you know, foundation, but then there's a lot of stuff that's just fun to watch because it's so campy. One of the things that's really campy about the movie is that all the henchmen in this film are cartoons. Oh, well, yeah, and the villain as well. Yeah. I mean, you've got Larry Drake, who, you know, by definition is a cartoonish villain, <laughs> really, and he's chewing up the scenery as much as he can here. It's odd. I, I think when I first saw this movie, I re- didn't react great to it because it has this weird, uncertain balance between taking itself extremely seriously and playing it as a cartoon. That has always been my problem with Raimi. I mean, you've kind of you've you've nailed it right there. And it wasn't until watching this movie that it really dawned on me that it's the problem I have with uh, Drag Me to Hell. It's the the problem that I have. Uh, the reason I like 
Evil Dead more than Evil Dead 2 is because I feel like Raimi can never really nail down what he wants, you know, tonally what he wants his films to be. And sometimes that works. And some, but most of the time for me, it's just like, I don't like the combination. Like the, either thing is fine, but the way you're combining them doesn't work for me. And I, mean, I think that's just kind of been something. And even in the first Spider-Man, I have moments like that. I mean, this for me is the film that I have for Raimi that I define that issue with, like where it was the most, like it was the most obvious that there was difficulty with getting it because the story itself is so dark. Uh, whereas like, you know, look at Evil Dead 2, it's pretty much watching a Looney Tunes cartoon with blood. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, uh, less of a problem with that. Less of a problem with Spider-Man because it's so cartoonish anyway. And we're so hyper familiar with the dark parts of the story. We feel like we're reading the Spider-Man comic strip in the newspaper as was somewhat intended with that here. I think part of the problem might be Liam Neeson, who's so good at playing the role, more serious, taking, you know, we take him very seriously in this role. He's acting his ass off. He's Liam Neeson. That's what he does. That's what he does. <laughs> uh, and, and it kind of sometimes made it hard to fully go and get into this film. But that being said, there's so many good things about this movie. There really are. Uh, it's, it's beautiful to look at. There's a lot of cool visual stuff in here. There's Great a lot production of, as, design. You, as you said, like things that are tropes now. But we're new then. Yeah. <laughs> you know, partially because of this, partially because of the Spider-Man films also done by Raimi. But yeah, I, I enjoy this a lot more than I, I don't. I liked it a lot better the second time. And it was one of those like, wow, why is this only now coming out on Blu-ray? Yeah, I, I, I actually don't have a good explanation for that. I, I thought it would have been. I mean, it was actually it was on HD DVD. This is one of those movies that I feel like may have gotten stuck in the limbo. Right, with the like rights issues. Yeah, with the with the format changeover. Well, but I will say, if you're a fan of this movie, Scream Factory has loaded this thing the fuck up with extras, including I never thought they'd be able to pull this off. A brand new interview with Liam Neeson about this film. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought they would. Well, to be fair, Liam Neeson will appear in anything these days. Well, <laughs> you're, you're referring to his movies, absolutely. But yeah. I, I feel like it would have been a challenge for anybody to, like, I, I know you're making huge box office right now, even in your shitty movies, but we want you to come back and talk about Darkman for this new Blu-ray. I'm I'm legitimately surprised that he was like, yeah, sure. And not only does he show up, but he is really, you know, sincere about everything he says, and he, he he's very insightful. It's clear he didn't just like run and gun the interview to get in and get out. I, you know, I got to applaud them for that. Yeah, as well as interview with Frances McDormand, of course, who sadly hasn't been in much lately. It seems like, but she's one of the great actresses I think of our time. I think once once the Coens moved on from using her and stuff so well, like it's just like nobody else would give her a shot. I don't understand that. I don't know what's going on there. Uh, Larry Drake as well has an interview on here. A look with the makeup, which is really good yeah. in this. A look at the the bad guys, uh, uh, the production design, like as you brought it before, is great. And a lot of vintage pieces make this a really solid purchase. I wish the only th and I know this is something they don't have on Blu-ray, so I'm asking the world right now. But if you ever played the NES video game of Darkman, <laughs> I didn't even know there was an NES video. It game. is so much fun and so bizarre and and almost too. Uh, it's almost too faithful to the movie. Like, there's literally a level where the, the, the objective of the level is to take pictures of the bad guys, because that's what he does, is he takes pictures of the henchmen, and then he makes a, a fake face and assumes that identity. So there's literally a level where it's just like, oh, oh, there he is, take a picture. Oh, there he is. I'm like, am I taking pictures in a platformer? What is happening right now? <laughs> I wish there was, like, a level you could play on the, on the Blu-ray. But again, that's not something that is ever on Blu-ray, so I'm asking too much. Still... Uh, you get all of these great special features. The the presentation, the transfer is is gorgeous. Like they've really done a tremendous job cleaning this up. Uh, there were a couple points where I felt like 
maybe too much digital noise reduction was used. But then again, part of the point of the movie is all about flesh tones and skin and fake skin. So I couldn't tell if it, it was DNR or if it's just a moment where somebody had the synthetic skin and it was supposed to look like that. So it was like, okay, maybe I should give it a pass for that. And of course, beautiful hand-painted artwork uh, once again, which is such a, a great trademark of the Scream Factory. I, I really, really can't recommend this enough. Yep. Right on. Well, that was... Uh, Dark Man. Hold on just a second. I need to double-check something here. Okay, moving on. I was uh, I was considering, but uh, there's something else coming up that I'm, I think I'm going to make my pick of the week. So, moving on from Dark Man, why don't we talk about The End of the Sixth Happiness? That sounds like a Shaw Brothers movie. Well, no, although this did take place a long time ago. <laughs> uh, this is a 1958 20th Century Fox film based on a true story of a British maid who basically... You know, I don't know if God told her to or what, but she decided that there was so much shit going on in China and so many poor people, the best place she could be used is to be in China. And basically, you know, strong-willed herself from London to China, getting people to help her along the way. Here played uh, by um, Ingrid, Bergman. Ingrid Bergman, who, of course, is just a fantastic actress, even though the original woman, Gladys uh, Aylward, was really upset about it because apparently she was a short dark-haired cockney chick <laughs> like, a woman looks nothing like me <laughs> as well as like there's a lot of other details that that she felt were incredibly relevant that were left out or changed not the least of which were ones that she felt were really and you can see the more i read the more i read about it, the more i was like okay she's not just bitching she has a genuine point considering like the apparently the end was called the end of the eighth happiness because eight is a very num numbers mean a lot in china as i right. discovered when i was there and six is not the number you would use for a place that's supposed to be so happy. why the arbitrary change I, that's as somebody in marketing probably said six sounds better so weird. i don't know yeah weird stuff like that but uh this is uh directed by mark robson who actually re received an academy award nomination for director for this uh here the first uh, third of this she's being rejected by everyone as a missionary to go to china was determined to find her way out there uh the second half is her she finds her way out to China in a small town where she secures a post as assistant to a veteran, a much older missionary woman who's there who's been building this inn for traveling merchants where they can get a hot meal and she can read them stories from the Bible. You know, okay. That sort of thing works. But she dies early on in that through an accident and Ingrid Bergman, totally out of her element but determined to make it work, is left there to make it work. You know, there's a lot of montaging where it's like, okay, years go by, she's done a great job, and everyone loves her. And this is, this is all, all this stuff is actually pretty much true. She's actually revered as a saint in China today. So what's uh, the, I mean, I, ultimately it's the, the Japanese invading China. Okay. And what she did to save the lives of over a hundred children by herself, uh, traveling across, you know, hundreds of miles of Japanese invaded land to get these children to safety, which is actually a pretty incredible story in and of itself. And it's filmed very well here. I mean, the strongest, the strongest thing here is really Ingrid Bergman and the fact that it mainly used a Chinese cast. There's a couple <laughs> roles in here where you're like, okay, the, the head of the Chinese guys here is being played by clearly a white guy you've glued big eyebrows onto. It's like, I know it's 1958 and it's hard to look back and be offended by those things now. Cause it was just, you know, for the time, it was pretty normal. But to their credit, there's a lot of people in here who are big speaking roles who are actually played by Chinese people or at least Asian people, <laughs> <laughs> which is a big deal for Hollywood at the time. 
<laughs> I mean, like I said, I, I enjoyed this. It was the second most popular movie at the British box office in 1959. And it is kind of a, if not a tearjerker, it's a feel good movie, you know, and they felt good about themselves because here's a British woman who went and saved all these Chinese people who danced with wolves. Or <laughs> Thank God for them white ladies. Right. <laughs> but it is a true story. Uh, you know, apparently the year this was released, she founded a children's home. The real woman found a children's home in Taiwan where she continued to run it till she died. Uh, her name in China means virtuous one. And she's still there. Shrines and statues to her and everything because all the good she actually did over there. So you can't really blame the movie when the Chinese themselves are like, no, no, she really is a saint. No, I agree <laughs> with you. But then again, the blind side is a true story, too. And that didn't stop us from making the joke. White lady save the day. Yeah, Nobody's making any statues to Sandra Bullock. So if there was one place it might happen, I would say it'd be Austin, though. I mean, she does <laughs> fucking live here. <laughs> you know, maybe if she dies young, tragically, sure. Let's but. not. Yeah, not that we're hoping for that. Let's no. be very clear about that. <laughs> but this is an old classic. It's a good like it's a good movie to watch with your parents type of thing. You're not going to dislike this at all. It's got a lot of, you know, genuinely filmed in China stuff, a lot of beautiful landscape and looking at the architecture of the time. I and mean, it's a, it's an old fashioned 50s film, but a good one. So I do definitely recommend this one, even if the, there's not much in the way of supplements. Sweet. All right. Well, that was the end of the sixth slash eighth happiness. Should have been eighth. Should have been eighth. Everybody wants an eighth, right? Uh, we're going <laughs> to move on to Chicago, the Diamond Edition. Wait, Chicago's a Disney movie? No, no, oh. no. Well, then I'm confused. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's just become normal to call, like, to make things sound better by calling them the Diamond or Gold Edition, you know? I don't think Disney's got a, a deadlock on that one. This, of course, is a 2002 musical film adapted from the stage musical of the same name, although very different from the stage musical in quite a few ways. Originally a Bob Fosse hit, who is arguably the greatest choreographer in the history of Broadway. Arguably. Certainly did some fantastic stuff. But this was one when it came out, it was kind of overshadowed by a chorus line, which came out very shortly afterwards, which is sad, because, like, most people consider this to be a real classic. And when it was re-released as a theatrical piece, and I think 1996, I think it became a monster hit, uh, and is still running after 7,000 performances, something like that. Oh, wow. Um, but this movie was kind of chancy. Uh, one thing they took a untried and musicals director, Rob Marshall, who had gone to, uh, the producers, I believe the Weinsteins and said, I have figured, yeah, the Weinsteins and said, I figured out a way to tell this story that's going to make it work as a film will be different from the musical and will, and and I think it's really going to draw audiences in. And I guess it turned out he was right since it won a fuck ton of Oscars. Yep. Sure shit did. <laughs> including best picture. Um, first musical to win best picture since Oliver in 1969. Now it's funny when I first saw this movie in the theater, I wasn't as blown away by it as everybody else was. I was kind of like, you know, I liked it. Mm. I'm just, I kind of a little bit at a distance. I think it was partially because everybody's kind of a villain. There's not really, I mean, the, the one character in there in here played by John C. Riley, who is not out and out a, a, a self-serving jackass is such a schmuck. Yeah. It's harder to root for him than it is for the more villainous. Yeah, absolutely. Film, played most notably by, uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Renee Zellweger, who plays Roxy Hart, a uh, house, uh, housewife, wife to John C. Riley, who ends up murdering, uh, uh, early appearance by uh, God, with Dominic West. No shit. Yeah, yeah. I was like, wow, is that Dominic West? Holy shit, he was in Chicago. Uh, ends up murdering him when she basically shoots says, right through that says, movie. I don't. I was never going to get you into vaudeville. I don't know anything about that. I was just trying to get in your pants. So she in anger kills him. Gets brought to prison. 
doesn't know what to do, found out that the state wants to make an example of her and make her the first woman executed in Chicago, which is not good. Also, not great. at the same time, is Catherine Zeta-Jones playing Velma Kelly, who was Roxy's hero, a major showgirl, who around the same time was arrested for the murder of her husband and her sister, who she found out had were cheating on her together. Walked in on them, and, well, there you go. The third part of this uh, triptych is Richard Gere. Comes in about halfway through the film as Billy Flynn, the lawyer to end all lawyers. The total badass, never lost a case, completely a self-serving asshole in every way, shape, and form. You can be a self-serving asshole. A white 1920s Johnny Cochran. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Now, this is filled up with a lot of other great actors in here. Calm Fior, uh, Lucy Liu, Tay Diggs. Uh, Queen Latifah has a great role in here as well. A lot of a actresses who play the other inmates who I hadn't heard of previously, but they're terrific in it as well. The whole thing is, as, is, does something different from the play, which I've never personally seen, but I know the main difference is in here, it's doing it all from the viewpoint, really, of Renee Zellweger's character, and doing it where, even though the real world version of things are taking place in this jail, it's constantly reinventing the jail and everything that's happening as the vaudeville circuit type performances that she wants to be in. Right. Like to a point of literalism that is hysterical. But the high point of this whole thing for me being where uh, uh, Richard Gere is forced to do a lawyer's tap dance when presented with a star yeah. like a startling witness. That he he's literally know. tap dancing around the truth. Yeah. And the literally is he's like actually doing, you know, he's talking and doing the delivery of like how he managed to turn the jury around with this piece of evidence that's hard to fight while going back and forth and watching him actually literally do an incredible tap dance. Yeah. There's so much great stuff in this movie. I'm baffled how I could not have fallen madly in love with this the first time I saw it. It's a great movie. Me watching this, I loved it so much it raised the hairs on the back of my neck. <laughs> I, I, I just think this is a next to flawless movie. So much fun. If you've never seen this, you really should take the time to. And this Diamond Edition uh, is actually the second Blu-ray release they've done of this. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm, I can't speak having not seen the previous version, how much better it is, but I hear from what I'm reading here, it sounds like they actually did, uh, prepare it a little bit better. It's prepared in Dolby vision, which is a proprietary technique, which is supposed to significantly boost detail and contrast. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I don't know. All I can tell you is it looked great to me. It sounded great to me. I see it getting straight five out of fives across the board. Of course, there's also a new special feature where it's deleted some of the previous special features. Huh. There's a new special feature, a retrospective with a cast and crew, which is two hours and 22 minutes long. is in just startlingly in-depth. And in huh. fact covers and expands on everything that was pretty much in the previously deleted sequences. So you're not gotcha. missing anything. You're actually getting a better version of it. There's also a st whole stack of extended musical performances, a feature commentary with Rob Marshall and screenwriter Bill Condon. This is my pick of the week. No wow. question. It is just, it's such an astonishing movie. It's one of the greatest musicals that have been set to film. And they've just, I mean, they've made this where it is everything you need in a package like this. It's funny. I actually used uh, Mr. Cellophane, which is the song that John C. Riley sings uh, in an audition a long time ago uh, when I was at college to be an actor and I was auditioning for one of the musicals. It's actually the piece that I – my voice cracks as I say that. So you might understand why I didn't get the part. Uh, but, yeah, it's I really love this musical and that's coming from somebody who – doesn't I don't really like musicals as a like on the whole like I don't I don't particularly uh, enjoy them but I really fucking enjoyed Chicago so I'm glad to hear that this release is something special and worth picking up and almost every song in it is catchy and memorable and original it's True. like something you rarely see from musicals where like it's hard to pick out a song you don't like 
Right. Absolutely. Well, from there, why don't we go ahead and spend a night in the woods? No. No, Wait, is this not. like Into the Woods? Did you just go from Chicago to Into the Woods? No, I wish. Oh, my God, I wish. <laughs> no, this is another fucking found footage horror film. That, and they package it. Like, it was one of those things, like, when you look at the package vaguely, the way it sounds, it sounds like people are saying really good things about it. But then you read the fine print, you realize, yeah. No one was saying good things about this. It's one of those, like, the quote they get, the source it's from is so small, I had to get a magnifying glass to actually read it, and it was something you've never heard of. And even that quote was something that felt so taken out of context that didn't necessarily mean anything. Yeah, be be an informed consumer, guys. Really pay attention when you see those quotes. My favorite situation ever is the only person that they managed to pull a positive quote from regarding the spirit – was somebody who wrote for, and I shit you not, this was a real outlet, cinemamoviefilm.com. Yep. If you see shit like that, or if the quote sounds impossibly sort of innocuous, don't buy into that. Agreed. And this is a a terrific example of that. Just because it's on Blu-ray doesn't mean it's going to be better either. Because this, man, it's hard to say because there's so much competition. But this may be the worst yet of the found footage films. Oh, Jesus. I mean, the one thing I'll say for this, at least the performances aren't bad. You've got Scoot McNary, who's been in a lot of stuff recently, who's playing a role in here. Uh, Anna Skellern. I mean, the idea here is basically... uh, this girl, played by Anna Skeller and Kelly, and her American boyfriend, Brody, played by Scoot McNary, they're traveling for a camping trip uh, that he's decided, because he's obsessed with his video camera, so he's like decides he's going to record the whole thing, which, of course, Carrie's only not terribly thrilled about, but puts up with, and, and he's even less thrilled when she invites her cousin, Leo, uh, played by Andrew Hawley, although... Uh, Brody, right from the beginning, is uh, ridiculously jealous. We find out more why so as it goes along, because there's a lot of, hey, here's some video I took earlier. Let's take a look at that now to explain this plot element, which is awkward and and breaks the film, any tension the film might have had up. Not well at all. Hmm. Ultimately, is one of those movies that is trying just to rip off the Blair Witch. It's these people, they just bitch and yell at each other the whole time. You don't really know why. Then when you do know why, you don't give a fuck, and it never really has anything to do with anything. And ultimately ends with one of those, okay, so what the fuck happened? (laughs) I mean, really, like, wow, not only do you never ever see the monster or whatever it might be in this thing you don't even see a flash of whatever this monster might be you see footage of people being dragged that's about it you know you don't even see the thing or whatever it is dragging them but at the end it was like well who cares everyone's acting like a a fucking self-serving idiot through this whole thing the this couple Obviously, there's no reason they should have been a couple in the first place. Uh, you know, he's a stocky jerk. She, her cousin, is actually the guy who de-virginized her, and she just lied to him about that, because I don't know why, because she's a fucking What bitch. is it with cousins fucking this week? <laughs> well, they're not actually cousins. Oh, thank yeah, God. Yeah, sorry. I know you were getting excited. I was like, boy, why is there a theme of cousin fucking this week? It, incest. It's a game the whole family can play. This this week's <laughs> show brought to you by the state of Kentucky. <laughs> no, it's West Virginia. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You get to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Only because they were my neighbors. <laughs> Oh man, it's just another another one of those like, hey, we'll make a film cheap and we'll spend our budget on getting two mildly recognizable stars for it, and ultimately make a film that's just boring and not scary at all. The one, you know, like I said, at least you've got halfway decent performances from the leads, but the script is terrible. There's no reason to like any of these people, and 
you know, I mean, I think that they said, I think what happened is that somebody went out on the moors, they discovered this really creepy, like, forest in the middle of the moors, and went, wow, and it is genuinely, naturally creepy-looking, weird, unearthly place. Mm. And they went, fuck it, man, let's just get $10,000 and make a movie here. That's what it feels like happened. There's no reason to watch this. I can't believe this has got a 42% on Rotten Tomatoes. Maybe three people reviewed it and two of them were cousins of the filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but this is just, it's just awful. You need to skip it. All right. Spend a night at home not watching A Night at the Woods. I will uh, I will keep that in mind. Well, from there, we're going to talk about Young Detective D, Rise of the Sea Dragon. Now, this is a sequel to... Actually, a pretty popular Asian film, Detective D and the Mystery of the Phantom Flame. This is a movie that I saw people talking about a lot over here in the States as well. I mean, this is not just a film that was popular uh, in, the in China. Yeah, the original is yeah. the one I'm talking about. Yeah. But I saw a lot of people here in the States talking about it. So uh, I'm interested to hear. I didn't get a chance to see this, but Chris, I'm interested to hear how the uh, how the sequel shakes out. Well, the original uh, starred Andy Lau, who's one of the truly all-time great Hong Kong actors. True story. Uh, and it's based on a really popular series of books that apparently weren't even Chinese in origin. But um, I, I haven't seen that one. I've heard it's a lot of fun. It is. But part, part of what brought this to prominence is that Chewie Hark, who, of course, is one of the all-time great Hong Kong directors, is in charge. Now, he has had some weak points in the last decade. I think that, I mean, for instance, he got to start making Zoo Warriors at Magic Mountain, which is just like an early, like 80s obsession with special effects over plot and the effects are terrible and you just get bored after a while going, okay, we get it. You like drawing lines on the fucking film. <laughs> uh, fortunately, he's gotten a little better knowing how to work with special effects. Unfortunately, by our standards, an effects-driven movie with as many effects as this and the previous film as well, in Hong Kong, they just still don't have the system in place yet to make the effects that are up to that quality uh, mm -hmm. that we're used to. It might have something to do with the fact that almost every scene has massive visual effects in it. But, I mean, it's a superhero movie for all extents and purposes. It's certainly a summer blockbuster type of film. This takes the character Detective D back to his beginning with a different actor, uh, uh, Mark Chow, who does a competent job. I'm sure not anywhere near as good as Andy Lau does. I mean, because he's fucking Andy Lau. But where uh, he has just come to this town and he's determined to... You know, he's been sent there to make his mark because his mentor has sent him there saying, hey, this guy's kind of a genius. And he's kind of a Sherlock Holmesy type mm -hmm. character, if yeah. you will, even to the point where he quickly makes friends with a young doctor who kind of takes him under his wing and he becomes his Watson, if you will. But imagine that set in your normal Chinese martial arts wushu with magic and dragons and shit type environment imagine dragons <laughs> uh you know i was going to recommend this to our friend uh, uh matt frank because yeah. this has an amazing third act with a giant kaiju monster the sea dragon that actually is the best special effect in this whole thing it looks fucking badass with like a bunch of like you know chinese people who can jump really high and send magic missiles and shit fighting a kaiju that's cool. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> like, you, you kind of want to see that. But, uh, you know, you don't really get to see much of the dragon uh, till the till like I said, the last 20 minutes or so. But that's okay. The rest of the story, as many subplots as there are, and boy, are there a lot, is fun for what it is. Yes, it's light entertainment. Yes, it's, like I said, the Chinese equivalent of a summer blockbuster, which is to say it's kind of a mixed bag. But I had a lot more fun with this than I didn't. Chewy Hart knows how to move a camera around and give you a real sense of like motion and excitement, even when the effects are substandard. 
the worst it did was make me go, man, imagine how amazing this would be if they had had better effects here. Because Turiak does a hell of a job directing the motion and action in this movie. There's some genuinely good fight scenes all throughout this thing. Uh, a nice sort of conflict between him and a, uh, uh, off, one of the head officers of the law in this town who just doesn't want the competition basically <laughs> there. So they keep, keep kind of fucking with each other. Uh, a beautiful princess who's being chased by a guy who is a, like, kind of looks like the creature from the Black Lagoon. He's got his own mystery wrapped up into all this. I mean, there's a ton of characters. At first it's a little confusing, but as it goes along, you'll get it. And I found myself by the end of it wishing it wasn't over. There's even a huh. very funny running joke in here where at one point um there's they've they've discovered that there's a like there's a poison that's the entire Imperial Court has been poisoned and the only way to cure it is drink virgin urine. <laughs> and so uh... all these people have to drink this urine and are just horrified. He's like, Well, it's the only thing that's gonna fix it. Uh and it comes back around in the end to a really funny little like post credits joke. This is Chinese, not Japanese, right? Because that yeah. sounds like a very Japanese film. No, thing. no, no, no. It's 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 a pretty funny joke. It works on here. It's not played for like a, a series of gross out factors. It's and it like I said, it comes around to not just one but two during the credits, really funny returns to that joke. Nice. There's a lot of good stuff in this movie, and I gotta say, I do recommend it. Movies that usually look like this tend to be to be horrible and just sort of boring adaptations of manga that are poorly done. This is better than most of them by a sizable margin while still not quite as good as maybe I was hoping. A lot of the reviews I was saying, put it, I saw put it on the same level as the original. So it's about the same level of fun. Oh, right on. You're going to know just hearing about it, whether or not this could be your sort of thing or not. And as these sort of things go, Hey man, I know I'm keeping my copy of it. So yeah, recommended. Best urine drinking scene since Waterworld, <laughs> Young Detective D, and the Sea of Dragon no, Hearts. Rise of the Sea Dragon. Rise of the Sea Dragon. It's a pretty badass sea dragon. Awesome. Well, now we're going to talk about On the Job, which is a Filipino action film. Uh, you know, it's funny. It refers to it as that, but I really think like to call it a crime film is probably... Yeah, no, that's accurate. definitely more accurate. I know that it's... Yeah, you're right. It categorizes itself as an action film. I don't know that I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, it's... Not it, that it doesn't have action sequences. Oh, it definitely does, but it's more of something... Yeah. When you think of something like The Departed, it's more like that yeah. than it is like, you know, I don't know, like a... You know, people think Filipino or even just Asian at all. They think, oh, a bunch of people are going to be doing martial arts and stuff. And no, 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 no. This is not no. what we're talking about here. This is actually a very ambitious movie about uh, four men who are trying to survive in a, a world filled with crime, modern day, if you will, and trying to make a living for themselves and their family. It, it constantly draws a line between the young, handsome cop who's coming up and all these people like his father and in law is like a very high up politician guy in the force and is saying, you know, we've got good things ahead for you, but you're going to have to understand that the system is a little corrupt and to get things done. Yeah. Essentially places, you're going to have to like do some things you don't want to do. You're going to have to stop being so squeaky clean. Yeah, exactly. On the other side, you've got a guy who is old, longtime criminal in a situation where from prison, they take people out of the prison and have them do assassinations and then yeah. put them back in prison. So they're never a suspect. This like, is what? apparently based on a true event, like something that actually was happening in the, in the, uh, in the Philippines where inmates were being let out of prison on like these, these sojourns just to go commit hits. It's a work furlough. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no but shit. he's got like a young, 
younger guy who's going with him. They've sort of formed a father-son type of relationship in a lot of ways as he's training him how to start doing what he does yeah. to go out on these hits and do it. And there's a lot of nobody knows who to trust. Everybody is up for sale to some degree. And these people who ultimately, I mean, even this criminal guy has his own very strong moral code. But when you're put in an impossible situation, what are you supposed to do about that? And everyone in this film is put into an impossible situation with their own morals to confront. What do you do about it? I I felt like I was a little confused what was going on through about half of this film. Mm -hmm. Uh, It moves really fast at first with like a lot of different characters. It was a little hard for me to decipher who was who and what exactly what was going on. But once I got a grip on it and more so even thinking about it after it was done, I really did appreciate this movie, but I can see why, even though this was a huge hit critically, it flopped in theaters. Yeah. People are, are not going to know what to expect from this movie. It is. I mean, the thing you don't expect from a film like this, as you're watching it, it's a very political crime thriller. I mean, this movie is taking some serious shots, no pun intended at the Philippines and at the, at the, you know, the, the government there and, basically all policymakers and it's a really interesting sort of subversion of the idea that there is right and wrong as long as you have uh you know institutions in place to protect that and it's really more about everybody's just doing what they have to to survive yeah yeah exactly um it's you know you do find yourself even though everybody's doing kind of reprehensible shit you can't help but sympathize with them, yeah. really, because they are in that scenario where you're like, well, what the fuck was I supposed to do in this situation? What, was it, what would you do if you were in this situation? Um, God knows I hope I never have to be in the Philippines making decisions like this nope. or anywhere because they're making a U.S. remake right now <laughs> that's in production of this. So so even more like there's an e- even bigger uh, parallel for The Departed. <laughs> probably won't take place in Austin, though, so I'm not that worried about it. No. Yeah. I mean, we got we got to do a lot of stupid shit to, to pay rent doing what we do, but no one's ever asked us to kill anybody. Not yet. That you know of. <laughs> well, like we would say. <clears throat> Confessions mm. of an addle-brained mind. <laughs> <laughs> Whiskey-addled mind, if nothing else. Yeah, so on the job, definitely recommend it, but make sure you go in with the right expectation. Don't expect to see something like The Raid. Don't expect to see something that's like a Hong Kong shoot 'em up This no. is a very political and very sort of dark slice-of-life crime thriller. I, I do think this is excellent. It just might... It might take you a little while to get into it. Like I said, I was expecting something really different, I think. And I know you were, too. Mm-hmm. And so it took me longer to get into it. But knowing what you're going into, I think you're really going to enjoy this. The critics loved the shit out of this movie when it came out. Um, I I feel like I'm going to need to revisit to really of course. to yeah. really know how I feel about it ultimately. But even the action scenes that are in this are super tense and incredibly mm-hmm. well filmed. It's because they're so close quarters. Yeah. There's nothing really spectacular about them. But at the same time... The, the way they're fighting in like these cramped little alleyways and these narrow streets, it's, it makes it really claustrophobic and tense. And, and excellent chase sequences. Yeah. Like lots of like sort of the, the one guy running from the other and just barely getting away or not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was on the job. From there, we're going right to the summit. To the very summit? To the very summit! To the top, my friends! To the top! This is a 2012 documentary film about, and you may remember this in the news, I kind of vaguely did you know this, you hear about this? But the 2008 K2 disaster. Uh, and this is directed in a way that c- combines documentary footage, of which there was quite a bit of. These guys on the mountain were shooting film, they were taking pictures, there was a lot of footage from up on the mountain itself, but it combines it with new footage, with recreations, with the help uh, of, uh, People who look a lot like the original people and with 
a lot of close-up interviews with all the survivors of this accident. I mean, this killed 11 hikers, this attempt to, to, to get to the peak of K2. And K2 is, while it's not the tallest mountain in the world, I think it's the second. I think Everest is still taller. It's considered definitely to be the most difficult climb in the world. I mean, hmm. like people, a lot of people have died on the K2. Very competent climbers. And this is another example. And it, it, it's a little confusing at points because it does a certain amount of jumping back and forth in time and going to previous like mountain climbs with some of these people where people were injured. And there's a lot of different characters to keep track of because it's a whole bunch of different teams from different countries that were working together. So at, at points I'm like, wait, what? I thought that guy died. Wait, no, I thought, wait, what? <laughs> I, 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 it, you know, it's it's just a little clustered at first, but once you you were K fused, I was a little K fused. <laughs> once I, I was a little ice blindness, <laughs> but what I I felt like once it, it I was once it gets back on track, once it's like okay, you got the backgrounds now. Here's the let's go back to the where we left off in the story of watching these guys who are basically at Camp Four. I mean, they got to that point in the mountain where they were right there. They were like one day's climb from the very top of, of the thing. And everything had gone perfectly. They were like, wow, this is who can believe the per- weather has been perfect. We've been so lucky in every way. And then everything falls apart. Jesus. <laughs> and it is truly horrifying to watch all the fucking just terrible shit that happens. Hell, a lot of shit that could have happened that didn't would have made it even worse. But it is a genuinely frightening film to watch. Although I must admit, I came away with it with the same thing I do with almost every mountaineering film. What the fuck are you doing climbing a mountain? See, you know what? That's, that's always my first thought as well. But then I think about it and it's like, you know, as a film critic, we're sort of like casual observers when it comes to life. Like that's what we do is we watch and we're, we're very happy with, you know, being indoor cats, yeah, as they and, say. And the future anthropologists will be able to tell as much from my couch about my anatomy as they will from my actual skeleton. Yeah. So. There you go. So, I mean, <laughs> I, I kind of like, I've softened on that point a little bit because I, my first reaction used to be exactly what you said, which was just, why the fuck would you stop? Just don't fucking go up there. It's obviously a mountain that kills people. Don't do it. But then I have to recognize that it's like, yeah, but I'm someone saying that who spends most of his time sitting safely on the couch, snacking and watching movies from all over the world. Like, I just have a very different idea of, you know, what it means to be alive and and what it means to, like, mine joy from life. So I... I kind of I kind of feel a little bit more sympathy now. And I don't know what happened over like the last couple months, but I kind of like a switch got flipped and I was like, "Oh, you know what? I don't blame these people for wanting to reach these heights and do these crazy things. It's just that those aren't the things that I pursue, but I mean, I understand you know. the instinct to some level. People throughout history have had that part of themselves that wants to that want that don't feel like they're alive unless they're on the edge of danger. I would call that a mental illness myself. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just think there's that one out of every four people who've ever climbed the K2 have died climbing the K2. Right. And yet pot is still illegal. Yeah. <laughs> Where no one has ever in, in 48 of the states. <laughs> I'm just saying. It it seems to me like this is a form of insanity to do this at all. That's just supported by people because it's like, wow, you're a hero if you do it. Because why? Other people, it's hard to do? I don't know. I get the instinct. I just don't approve of the approval of it. I guess, if you're playing at home, what Chris is basically saying is if you're not just like him, you have a mental illness. No, that's not, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you, do, if you do something that's literally just for yourself, there's no actual physical re- reward for it. There's no higher station in life that one out of every four people die in the midst of doing. That's not going to improve anybody else's life either. I would call that a form of mental illness by definition. But – 
I know there's a lot of people are going to disagree with me. I mean, I'm not saying mountain climbing in general. I'm just talking about doing this mountain. You mm-hmm. you have you need to go talk to a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> there's got to be something more productive. Why don't you go do what that chick from the end of the Six Happiness doesn't go to some impoverished country where there's fucking they people are shooting at you all the time. They're going to and no help poor people. <laughs> They're going to Tibet. It's a very impoverished country. Uh, yeah, but they're not helping anybody on the way except for paying for the Sherpas, who, by the way, also died. So yeah. they're providing lots of meat for the local fauna. <laughs> right. <laughs> I know. I'm going to get shit about this. I'm sorry. I've always been like, just that point. I'm like, I, I think it's it's obviously part of the whole human condition that we uh, the way we define people that are who are our heroes for braving danger. But I go. There's po- some points where braving danger is just being plain silly. Yeah. You know, Ask me another beer while you're at These people didn't listen to their parents, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we uh, as we move on from the summit and damn it, mountain climbers. eat another tube of Pringles. Just uh, have some peanut butter and sit on the couch already. <laughs> Chris does not have a dog. I feel we need to mention that. Considering <laughs> it's like, just get some peanut butter and sit on the couch. Uh, yeah, we're going to talk about Achi and Shipak. Shipak. Yeah, I kept trying to remember how to say it. Even when I, after they'd say it in the movie, I'd be like, wait, what did they just say? Shipak. It's like Siapak? Siapak. It's a Korean anime film, which you don't actually see too terribly many of. And the reason for that is because all of them have bombed. Well, there you go. All the Korean animation films apparently have not been hits at all, and they've tried repeatedly to make animation take off there and they just for whatever reason aren't that into it which is a shame because this this uh, 2008 south korean film is fucking amazing i really okay now you have to understand the gravity of what i'm about to say i don't like anime at all like it's even colored how i look at movies by like miyazaki like i just don't i don't get it i'm not into it i really like Ashi Fuck. i don't know that i would call this anime it doesn't have any of the hallmarks visually at all of what i would say is in anime and that may be because our our traditional view of what anime is is japanese yeah and you know i mean totally different country you know it's it just doesn't look like anime it doesn't feel like it what you know what it feels like it feels like if somebody took ralph bashke and said i want you to make an action film because it's got a lot of ralph bashke's hallmarks of it at least in terms of story here the idea being here now stick with me because you're going to be like why would i want to watch this yeah you're gonna there's gonna be people tuning out it's like with every point of the plot that you give okay so in this futuristic story uh there's no regular energy and fuel sources but mankind have figured out a way to use shit as fuel, which is not out of the question that that would wait, be. Wait, wait, did you hear that? Like 40 people just dropped off. Yeah, I know, but <laughs> stick, come on, come back, come back. And the way to reward people for, for like shitting more is that whenever you go to a toilet and shit, the government has like little, like, Zoom tubes send you down what they call a juicy bar, which is addictive popsicle. Uh, 50 more people just dropped off. Yeah. Uh, well, stick right. with us, guys. I stick promise this is good. They're being fed drugs. Now, the main characters, Achi and Sipak, are hoodlums who basically they kick down the toilet walls of people taking a shit and steal their juicy bars, then sell those juicy bars on the black market. But they're not the only ones. There's a whole group of these little weird Smurf looking guys who form, the, who have this terrorist group. Seriously, stick with us. Who are like super addicted to the juicy bars and they're just trying to take out the government so they can take all the juicy bars to themselves uh they get achi and cpac get involved with a porn star who uh cpac's totally in love with who gets forcibly inserted into a rectum this sort of high technology ring that will make her 
take buku shits basically like shits a lot i promise you this is worth watching it's so hard to explain the plot and and convince you that it's worth watching but it really is so everybody wants to get a hold of beautiful uh but they want to she's got a business deal with the two of them to to get as many juicy bars as possible uh there's a lot of poop and piss jokes in here i mean it's the it's it's one of those things that doesn't even feel gratuitous because it is the plot. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's woven into the narrative of like the world that they've built. And there's the more I think about this, the more I'm like, there is no fucking way on planet Earth I should like this movie. It has every it is technically it contains everything I don't like. And yet the way that they make it all work out is so interesting and fun that I can't help but love these characters and love this bizarre little world that they've created. The, the number one thing that helps you like it is that the animation is gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, it really is. Unlike anything you've ever seen before. I've never seen a movie that looks like this even a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it intermixes CG and and hand-drawn and a bunch of different techniques all in one. It has the style points of even, like, Disney-type stuff where it's like, hey, here's the sequence of the film with the roller coaster ride, which, by the way, is, like, every ten minutes in this movie. Yeah, there's some really cool animated action sequences in this oh movie. Oh, God. Like Road Warrior-type stuff. I mean, this thing never gets boring for a second. True story. It's so much action. One of the characters in here is a cyborg cop that's, like, basically a superhero who's constantly taking out the little blue guys. It's like gory as hell. Like he's just ripping them to shreds and yeah. just thousands of cartridges of ammo are spent. And it's, there's nothing else like this. I don't know what to tell you. I, I mentioned this way back on the Leog on the early days. We saw this at Fantastic yeah. Fest in what, 2009, I think something like that. No, it was the first one that I went to. It was, was it? Yeah. It was 2000... Fantastic Fest three. Okay. So seven. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, and we're raving about it then. This is just now finally coming out on DVD. Yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> I, I And I think, like I said, partially because it was, in fact, a bomb, despite the fact that, like, everybody who actually saw it loved it. Got huge, hugely great critical reviews. But once again, a total flop. Total ticket sales, $107,000. You're like, wow, that's terrible considering what this is the exact type of film you'd want to see on a big screen. It's definitely just, so I'm, I'm really, I'm really glad that we got that opportunity. Yeah. And, and it's, yes, it's very childish in its plot. It's very like, I mean, it's like I said, in the ways that it's like Ralph Bash, there's lots of sex jokes. There's a lot of nudity in it. There's mm-hmm. a lot of that, those type qualities you can see, except it's just so much more filled with motion and action and, and in many ways, just a more beautiful looking film. Well, and I have a problem where like certain Japanese anime will carefully establish its rules and, and its world. And then it will just keep pushing the boundaries of weirdness beyond that just to, you know, continue to push the envelope. This movie holds fast to its own, its own mechanics, its own logic. Yeah, it sets its rules early on in the film and the rest of the film sticks within that, 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 uh, that framework. So nothing feels out of place. Like if yeah. some of the like the weird stuff never feels out of place. It feels like it's just part of the everyday life of these characters. And the other thing that I think really elevates this material is that the dialogue between our two leads is so fucking funny. Just oh, like yeah. really snappy and really like when when Achi gives an insult, it's really funny. It's almost like the league, you know, like that snappy back and forth insult type stuff. Now, that being said, this is not the world's best DVD release of this film. For one thing, the only subtitle option here is when it looks like closed caption on a regular television show where it's got the big black box around it. Mm. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And you're watching a beautiful animated film. You don't want that taking it up. I That's was really supposed to turn off the subtitles, which I, I like watching movies with subtitles, especially when they're moving this fast. I mean, there's constant dialogue and craziness going on. You don't want to miss anything. So it's a film I'm like, okay, I'd like to see those. Having them be that obtrusive was kind of a pain in the ass. The other thing 
thing is there's no option for a non-dubbed version. There's no you can't watch the original Korean what? version. What? There's only the American dubbed version. That's here. bullshit. Now, I'm that, sorry. That being said, they did a fucking phenomenal job with the American dubs here. They sound <sighs> the actors in this get the energy right. It's really funny. I after the initial discomfort of the fact that it's not even an option to watch it in the original Korean, I found myself forgetting about it entirely because the dub job is so good. I mean, that that's good and all, but like to not even have the option really is shit. In I this mean, day and age, how do you, it's the fucking language the movie was recorded in. How hard would it be to add that extra? Yeah. I it know. shouldn't be an extra. It's the fucking language the movie was recorded well, how in. How hard it would be to add that as a separate audio. Yeah. Track. Yeah. It's just, that's, that's bizarre. But that's that would have made it even more frustrating if you had to watch it with those subtitles. Yeah. I guess that's true. <laughs> it was odd because there was obviously points where it was like, felt like it had been updated a little bit for our time because there's lots of pop culture references yeah. sprinkled throughout this. And there was a few that were like, felt like more recent than, when this film came out. So I feel was like there's still a Paris Hilton joke. Yeah, I think so. Okay. There was, but there was like a paranormal activity movies series joke. And I was yeah, like, I that, think that was at the no. original version of the that. Movie. was not in the version we saw because that movie didn't exist. Yeah, I yet. don't think that had come out yet. So it was like, okay, they obviously huh. updated this a bit, which is odd, but like I said, ultimately it worked. I just really wish I could watch this in the original version, but this is all we get. We've got, as a way to see it and goddamn is it good anyway so man really high recommendation to this movie so much fun what studio put out or what company put out this particular dvd do you remember uh, it's cinefilm i think okay cinefilm we should start a letter writing campaign dear cinefilm for the love of god if it's a korean film recorded in korean Please allow us to hear the movie with a Korean language At track. Have, let us have that option. Yeah, that's that's insane. And don't do that with the subtitles. What the fuck? Yeah, we're gonna like we're taking a break from our our dutiful letter writing campaign to Kino to add subtitles to their shit <laughs> to tell you how to add subtitles to yours. Come on, it's not that hard. Just look what everyone else is doing. <laughs> well, from there we're gonna hop aboard the Trans Europe Express. And I suppose we have to. In fact, speaking of Kino, I'm just going to throw two films here together in one review. These Do it. Both made in the 60s by Alain Rob. I don't know. It was Rob A. Rob Grillet. Uh, and he, it, this is Art Film Corner, just flat out. I'm going to tell you. Art Film Corner. Arty film stuff. Uh, both the, uh, this guy's movies in general are very erotic films, a lot of sex, a lot of nudity, but. Unlike a lot of the other stuff like that coming out of Europe at the time, he gen gen genuinely is making art films. They're quite beautiful at times. Uh, at other times, like, okay, let's get on with it. Kind of depends on how you feel about art films, but I did find that both these movies, you could basically understand what was going on. There was a lot of interesting and motifs that would keep they would keep returning to. I enjoyed both movies. They're not for everyone. <laughs> They're very strange. They have very little in the way of plot. Mm -hmm. this, uh, Trans Europe Express is probably the more famous, definitely the more famous of the two. Uh, it doesn't, like, once again, it doesn't really have a plot, but it is a thriller and a film within a film where some people are sitting on a train trying to decide how to write the story of the characters that is the other part of the story about, like, a drug runner on a train going from Paris to, Paris to Antwerp on the Trans Europe Express. And there's, a lot, like I said, a lot of sex happens, but then it doesn't happen, too, because they'll be like, oh, they have sex. Oh, no, wait, they don't. <laughs> it's like something will happen, and then the people go, no, that's stupid. That doesn't make any sense. Let's have them do this instead. And ultimately, there's no real being brought into the drama of this. It's ultimately titillating uh, in the, you know, the, the violence and the sex that's in it. It's 
informative in what it has to say to some degree about genre and the statements it's making, however vaguely about genre. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly something you've never seen anything like it, <laughs> but it's not something that you could make now by any stretch of the imagination. It's, it's a product of its time. Now, if you want something even more titillating, exciting, successive slidings of pleasure is... Which sounds like, I'm sorry, that sounds like the worst translation of the original title. No, like someone just, just, I mean, it might not be, but what it sounds yeah. like is somebody fucking up the translation of the title. They actually uh, interviewed the director, which I watched on here, and he, he specifically referred to it as, as what they intended it to be, but he wanted to go with a different word than, than slidings. And I forget why, but they were like, no, 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 we can't do that. And then ultimately was sold on slidings because it sounded more sexy anyway. Yeah. They were going to go with successive eighths of pleasure, but apparently they changed it to slidings. It was the weird. The idea here is this woman, uh, basically she's got a art partner that you see her naked and tied to the bed and she's painting her literally like putting paint on her. And the next thing you know, she's got scissors in her chest is dead. The cops have shown up. They incarcerate uh, the main chick, uh, who is, by the way, one of the more beautiful women I've ever seen on film. Uh, only, only pretty much had a career doing this sort of thing. But there while she's in prison, all these series of people, nuns, priests, um, lawyers from both sides, investigators, she ends up sort of all seducing them all in a weird sort of way, or at least maybe she does. It's hard to tell. A lot of this is her reality is kind of fluid. You're not clear of what really happened and what didn't. Mm. But that being said, like I said, this is even more of an art film than a other one is. That being said, people, these women, like every girl in this movie is naked throughout most of this movie. <laughs> There's crazy <laughs> weird sex stuff. There's lots of neat, just neat reoccurring things about glass being broken, about eggs, about like all lots of stuff with like red on white. Just it, it's hard to really sell you on why this film was actually effective for me and worked without just seeing it. Mm -hmm. It's it's one of the few films that is as intentionally nonsensical as this, like intentionally plotless almost uh, that require that that relies in, entirely on nudity and just a sense of visual beauty in a, in that sort of arty metaphorical way that I actually really liked. I, I can't even explain to you why. Maybe I was just in the right mood for it. I don't that know, happens. But I, I found myself kind of drawn into it. Couldn't, couldn't put it down. I thought it'd be one I'd watch 15 minutes of and go, okay, not my type. Like of with thing. the genre Lynn stuff we usually watch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I found myself really drawn into this. I found this something incredibly more competent than any of the genre lens stuff I'd seen. And just more, like I said, much more visually interesting, certainly with a bigger budget. So I, uh, of the two films, although trans Europe express is higher regarded, I found successive slidings of pleasure to be more fun. If for no other reason that it's just a lot sexier, <laughs> <laughs> but like nice. I said, this is not for everyone. This is for those who really do want to see sort of the, the roots of this type of art film. And, it's there aren't a lot of good films that describe themselves as erotic that are any good at all except yeah. for five minutes at a space. Yeah, this yeah. is one that's gen these are genuinely good erotic films. Right on. Those Trans Europe Express and Successive Slidings of Pleasure, which are both, I believe, being released on the Redemption line from Kino. Yeah. Right on. All right. Well, moving on from there, the Criterion. Uh, release of the week is The Fantastic Mr. Fox by Wes Anderson. You son of a bitch. I love the hell out of this movie. This is, I, I you know, I was thinking about it a lot the other day, and The Fantastic Mr. Fox is my favorite Wes Anderson movie. Wow. I know a lot of people uh, really like Tenenbaums, you like Rushmore. Uh, the thing that 
tends to kind of rub me the wrong way about Wes Anderson. And I know this is not a view shared by everybody. I'm not saying that it's a, it's a categorical problem with him. I'm saying it's a thing I don't like about his movies is that he, he usually gets to a point within the film where I feel the, the story gets sort of needlessly melancholy and it doesn't fit. And it's not that movies have to be happy all the time. It's not that any story has to have only high moments, but he seems like he always does a really, uh, you know, you know, he, he really goes to a lot of lengths to develop a whimsical fantasy world, even within our own. And it's just almost like everything is dream based and it's really fun. And then he'll throw us a curveball that, while it might be emotionally poignant, kind of feels at odds with the rest of the movie. And it's it's always the thing where I usually just, okay, this is that moment, okay, and we get through it, I'm fine. But what I like about Fantastic Mr. Fox is that the world he's he's working within doesn't have an opportunity. He never has the opportunity to venture that way. And I feel like it makes the movie tighter. Like, it makes the movie more cohesive. Well, it's odd that it sticks so close to the Roald Dahl novel. Like the, the same guy wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, amongst other things. James mm-hmm. and the Giant Peach. It sticks very closely to the story, while still the entire time feeling very much like a Wes Anderson movie. <laughs> like a Wes Anderson film. You can't miss it. Yeah. And partially because of your cast. You got, like, you know, George Clooney is playing the, the lead character, the fantastic Mr. Fox of titularedom. Jason Schwartzman is in this. Uh, Bill, Murray. Bill Murray. Owen William Wilson. Defoe, Owen Wilson. A lot of a lot of his Gambon. go-to guys are here. Yeah, and so yeah, there's no missing the fact that that's what you're watching. Plus, just the way they've all kind of got that sort of like hipness to them. I mean, all of Wes Anderson's films, except for maybe Bottle Rocket, have that feeling that I I, I really enjoyed. Okay, what was the most recent one? Uh, not the one that's about to come out, but the one. Oh, uh, Moonrise Kingdom. Moonrise Kingdom mm-hmm. literally defined their characters as living in a dollhouse. All his movies kind of feel like it's a guy like who's playing with his very, very expansive, you know, that he's very precious about Dollhouse. I yeah. mean that in a good way for me, but I know why it irritates yeah. some people. Yeah, no, absolutely. This still feels like that. It's a guy playing with his toys. Well, literally, it's they live in tiny little burrows. Like, yeah. it couldn't be more of a Dollhouse. And I, I just really like the story. I like how George Clooney plays the lead as sort of this, uh, this very egotistical, but very sweet and charmingly. Like... You want to hate him the whole time, but you can't. Like, he makes it impossible for you to feel anything but, uh, you know, but joy toward him. And well, he's a fox, yeah. and he has the characters that, characteristics that are traditionally in stories associated with fox. He's manipulative. Exactly. But he's good at it. He's and really good at it. Ultimately, is really trying to be there for his family. Yeah. So. Yeah, you, you can't fault him for that. I just, I love that. I love the, the weird sort of, uh, the thing that they, they give him where he's always making speeches and toasts and his ability to kind of, uh, sway the opinions of people by making a really eloquent toast. And yeah. I, I also love the fact that he's a writer. It, like this, this is something that really like hits home for me is he's a writer who feels like nobody's reading what he's doing. <laughs> and he's kind of, he has like this weird sort of like nerve about that. He's like, maybe some of you read my column. I tend to doubt it. Like, I, I love that line so much. It's so, it's so perfect. So they like, even though they're animals, they live in this almost sort of like tragically hip human, like, uh, like Soho existence. It's very bizarre, but it, it works really well within the context of the story. And plus, there are so many moments in this movie that are just so adorable. Like everything with, uh, with the game that they play, you know, when he's dashing back and forth and it's just like, hot box, divide that by nine, please. 
just just really cute moments, but really like uh, I thought hot box is when you fart and hold someone's heads under the. Covers. It's also called a Dutch oven, yeah. Okay, but right. you're right, you're right. right. Um, but yeah, and the way they develop their villains is is so much fun. And not only that, but I mean, you look at the style of animation of this film. Like this and the Lego Movie for me are, are two movies that remind me that not every animated film has to look exactly the same. Yeah, yeah, very unique style to this. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think this was all ultimately in CG, but it doesn't look like it. Well, they used they used a lot of stop motion. Was like, it actually used? You, you watch the behind the scenes stuff, and they have these little like arms by on which they hold the these little like they're almost like little robots more than they are puppets, where they kind of manipulate them and then they take a frame. So. There is some of it that's CG, but most of it is actually this weird sort of uh, nouveau stop-motion animation, and it looks phenomenal. Yeah, and speaking of that, this is, of course, a Criterion edition, and boy, did they load this sucker up. The introduction alone is worth the price, because it's the there's a great moment in the movie where you have this guy who's kind of doing a, like a, a uh, what do you call it, like a Greek chorus type musical narrating of what's happening. And he's using a lot of like vocal scat. Mm. And so he'll like say a line and then he did la di la di. And then at one point, one of the villains stops him and goes, those aren't words. You didn't write any, that's bad songwriting. <laughs> and that character, that minstrel character shows up at the beginning and he's like, hi, I had a very small part in the film, but uh, it, it just kind of explains what the movie's about. And he's like, but listen for my great song. And then it just goes into the movie and it's like, you said minstrel character. So everyone's <laughs> like, yo, what's up, blood? <laughs> <laughs> Gross. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's a really charming movie. It's the, the innovative and spectacular way by which they animated it is, is mind-boggling and captivating, and I I love every frame of this film. It's it's a movie that that really, and I think part of it is that I'm I grew up with with Roald Dahl. In fact, I remember my dad used to read me Danny Champion of the World, and there's actually a plot point in this movie that's not from the Fantastic Mr. Fox. It's from Danny Champion of the oh, World. Nice. It's the the blueberries thing. Where oh, they give okay. them the blueberries to knock the, the beagles out. Right. That's a plot point from Danny Champion of the World. Cool. Uh, and also, there's something weird about this movie is it almost feels like it's Wes Anderson's Pulp Fiction because he makes references left and right to all kinds of different things that are just woven into the narrative. That's true. That you wouldn't catch at first. And you're like, wait a minute, is that line of dialogue from Rebel Without a Cause? Yes, it is. Uh, what a weird thing. It's a lot of people, even big Wes Anderson fans, hold this as their favorite of his films. And it's certainly... It's arguably the most perfectly crafted of his films. I, I mean, I still go with Royal Tenenbaums as the one sure. I personally enjoy the most, but the, it's hard to argue with how good this really is in every way. Uh, I mean, this has got a seven-part look at the production highlights, and the best, a lot of extra features. The best one has got to be Roald Dahl himself reading Fantastic Mr. Fox yeah. for an hour. So good. An actual audio recording of him doing it and doing it with like great enthusiasm, apparently. So I'm like, yeah. okay, that's, that's a pretty cool extra to have there. Um, well worth, yeah, I wish I had gotten sent this or at least I don't think I asked for it because I have the previous edition of this on Blu-ray. Yeah. That's, that's something else we need to talk about is something I wasn't even aware of, but our, our, uh, I promise you he's still alive co-host Luke Mullen was telling me about was that Criterion has started to move away from releasing Blu-rays by themselves. Like, they're moving toward dual format. And the reason they're doing that for all of these Blu-ray releases, even if they potentially have a DVD of it already, is that it cuts down on the number of factories they have to have. Oh, they don't sense. have to have a DVD factory and a Blu-ray you know, production house. Uh, so this, what they're releasing here, is a dual format, so you still get the DVDs as well as the Blu-ray. And actually, one thing that kind of irritated me about this release is, and I know this is a nitpick, believe me, I know, but on one side, they have, uh, you know, the two discs, one on top of the other. So, like, one is slightly higher, and it has the little sure. prong in the middle, and then the other one's kind of underneath it. Slipped in. Yeah, it slipped. Slot. And that always... 
bothers me a little bit because I always feel like I'm going to break something. Not crazy about that. That yeah. My favorite right now is is probably the way oscilloscope does it, which is the whole box is cardboard. Yeah. It's all paper. It's all beautiful, and it just slides into the side of it. I'm sure. Like, I don't. I don't need. There shouldn't be plastic rings anymore. There's no. I'm not talking environmentally. They break. Yeah. Like by normal use, they'll break off. Well, not only that, but like I said, I, I always feel like I'm going to break the disc pulling it out of when yeah. it's there's one on top of the other. Yeah. And not only that, but they put the Blu-ray under the DVD. Yeah. Why? Yeah, like you, you can always reverse it yourself. I mean, you can, but the first time you get it out of there, it was just like, oh shit, I don't want to snap this thing in half. Yeah. yeah. It's a very weird thing, but it, you know, it's got a beautiful cover. Uh, I believe it, it does come with a, a booklet. Uh, there's. All of these special features. I mean, it's just a great overall release, but it's going to be interesting to see going forward what happens with these with these dual format things as opposed to just re-releasing some of their old catalog on you know single-disc Blu-ray. You are correct, sir. But this is also my pick of the week. I, I love this film so much. This is a beautiful transfer. So many great special features. Overall, very great packaging. Uh, yep, fantastic. Mr. Fox Criterion, my pick of the week. Right on. So moving on from there, why don't we talk about Masquerade? Yes, this is not the old Rob Lowe picture, by the way. Oh, well, fuck this then. Sorry. No, this is a... a that no- is literally the most disappointed I've ever been this in my life. This is another Korean film. Oh, okay. A lot of Korean films this week. Uh, 2012 historical film. Not something you see as much from, from Korean cinema traditionally, but uh, this is kind of a masterpiece in its own way. Not something I would have expected, because I find myself... like I'm like one out of every five of these Asian historical pieces I find to be much more than just beating the same drum that mm-hmm. they all do. This one takes a very different take based on its real story of the bizarre King Guanghei uh, and an acrobat, acrobat Ha-sun, who apparently was the, the look-alike stand-in for the king, who was forced to stand in for him for a protracted period of time when the king was... Basically, accidentally drugged, or I mean, it's never clear if he's purposely or accidentally or exactly what happened. But regardless, was drugged to the point that they thought he was going to die, uh, and they were like, "Well, it's going to cause chaos if people know something's happened to him." So we're going to have this acrobat who was sort of ra- ran a theater troupe where he would play the king and sort of lightly satirize him, him uh, not in like a sort of trying to be political way, just for people's enjoyment way. Who. And this guy ends up getting into the role and learning enough about actual politics and what's happening where he decides he can actually do some good for this fucked up country at this point that the actual king was not doing. He was getting carried away with all the excess. Oh, you mean I can fuck anybody I want? (laughs) That sort of thing. (laughs) Well, okay. Yeah, well, you can see why he would have gotten, yeah. But I found this incredibly moving and effective, beautifully filmed. I mean, this is... uh, you know, from takes place between 1574 to 1641 or sometime in the middle of that period, uh, when China was basically in control of Korea and Korea was just starting to get a little irritated about these shackles mm-hmm. during the Ming dynasty. And it's, this is supposedly this king in real life. This was, he was for one of the first kings to stand up, start standing up to them, say, no, no, this is Korea, not China. You can't do that. The actual king reportedly like a lot of the stuff we see the stand and do in here is stuff that the king ultimately did or at least supported the movie i'm not sure how much is true of whether or not the stand in was responsible for these decisions getting started and mm-hmm. then the king later deciding oh, wow he actually cares about the people maybe that was the right thing to do but regardless it makes for one hell of a thrilling story to watch and a really emotionally affecting one if there's a complaint to be made about this it it pulls the heartstrings manipulatively to the point that you're there was levels of it where I was like, okay, guys, cut it out. You're going, <laughs> you're Knock really, that shit off. You're getting a little too triacly here for <laughs> anyone. But 
it's not the type of film you normally see coming out of Korea. It's got terrific performances, beautifully shot. Uh, it's been called one of the best South Korean costume dramas ever made. It was the, uh, the second biggest hit of the 2012 South Korean box office. And apparently the, the, I think the, was it, it's the fourth all time highest grossing film in Korea now. So. I mean, people liked it. I think you will, too. It's not hard to understand at all what's going on in this. It's actually relatively simple, its story. It just, there's even a love story going on as the replacement is falling in love with the actual queen who's been ignored for years by her husband, the king, as he fools around with everybody but her, pretty much. I really liked it. I highly recommend this film. It's like I said, it, this is not an action film. It's it's a beautiful, emotional costume drama that really works. No extra features, which is a shame because I would have loved to have seen a making of of this one. Uh, it's obviously, I mean, like huge sets. It looks like I was just at the Forbidden City in, uh, in China, and it looks like the Forbidden City where they filmed this thing. This huge, old compound. I, I mean, I assume it was, was not. It was actually filmed somewhere in Korea. But wow, it's gorgeous. One of those places I'd love to visit if I was ever in South Korea. Yeah, highly recommended. Nice. But you're telling me Rob Lowe is not in it at Rob all. Rob Lowe is not. Will you let Rob Lowe go already? Not even Rob L.O.? Look, I'll loan you my first three seasons of The West Wing. You can get over it. Deal. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to move on to our last title of the day, which is also going to be our giveaway. And it's actually Apparently, I'm the Swedish chef all of a sudden. Sorry about that. Vincenzo Natali's Haunter, which uh, is a film that played here uh, last year at South by Southwest. Vincenzo Natale, if you're not familiar, is the guy who also did Splice and Cube. Yeah. Uh, so he's a guy that does some really wildly imaginative stuff within genre. And uh, as Chris and I were actually talking at a screening earlier today, is a guy who likes to reinvent elements of genre. Like, is my cat trying to make love to you again? I don't know, but he's like all he's of... like crawling up you like a python right now. Yeah, yeah. His his front claws are definitely in in my skin. Uh, Sorry about that. That's okay. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so Vincenzo Natale here is kind of uh, putting a new twist on uh, the Haunted House film. Very much so. And I really, really like what he did with it because, again, it's you know we talked about expectations earlier in the show. And, and this is another movie where you really need to go in not expecting you know, something like a paranormal activity. That's not, this movie is not even really about the scares. No. This, this movie is not about what's going to make you jump and, and you know, uh, what's going to make your skin crawl. It, this is just a really compelling supernatural story. It's kind of an adventure in its own way. And, you know, it's not a spoiler to say this is like taking where the others, the movie The Others left off and the idea that here we're seeing this from the viewpoint of the ghosts mm-hmm. in a haunting situation. But the movie rev- plays its hand with that extremely early in the film. Yeah. What the deal is, is about them trying to discover that they are, in fact, ghosts. Abigail Breslin plays Lisa, the main character, which was a real score for the director to be able to get her for this role. As yeah. I felt this movie to work required a, a good actress to play that part, and Breslin does a great job. She's a teenage girl. She's almost 16, uh, but she's stuck on the same day of her death in 1985, along with her parents and her brother, and they're all unaware that the same day keeps happening. But Imagine like, Groundhog Day as a ghost story. Exactly. that They just keep reliving the same day. As like you hear in ghost stories, like often you see ghosts and they're just sort of going through the motions of what happened at some traumatic point of their life. But she is the one person who starts figuring out that something like, like, wait, this seems familiar. Start seeing that things keep happening. Start trying to change things. And as she starts trying to change things, 
trying to unravel this mystery of what's happening, you know, even while coming to terms with the fact early on that they are all in fact dead. And why is this going on? How do we get out of it? It's clear that something doesn't want them to break out of the cycle. Something yeah. dark. Something dark and sinister. Yeah. And that's that to me is where the movie really gains its strength is it's not even it's not about, you know, trying to scare you. It's not about, you know, ghosts as sort of a, uh, a, an entity of malice. It's more like like drifting through the afterlife and trying to figure out what the hell is going on and the mysteries that that come from existing within that world. It's almost like, you know, like in Beetlejuice where the Maitlands are trying to figure out what the fuck do we do now? We're still yeah, just we're not played for comedy. No, it's not played for comedy at all, but it's still that same sort of like we're trapped in this house. Everything outside the house is really like dangerous and ominous. I, that's one of the things I actually really love about the movie is the cinematography. Everything is foggy. Everything is, is very nightmarish. Uh, you know, not in a sense of like things leaping out of the dark, but just, it just feels ominous the entire time, and I really enjoyed that. And I thought uh, there's a great performance in here by Stephen McCaddy, who you might recognize from Pontypool, and it was uh, or any number of other things. Yeah, he's yeah. been in a shit ton of stuff. Yeah, Pontypool was his. I think that one of the first times I saw him play the lead role mm-hmm. in something. Mm-hmm. Well, boy, is that movie controversial with people? You either really loved it or you could not fucking stand it. Yeah, I fell on the I loved it side for that one. But... I fell in the it's pretty good. Like <laughs> on Haunter, this was my favorite, one of my favorite films of South by last year, and and arguably my favorite genre film. Uh, of South by altogether. Um, it wasn't one I had a lot of strong expectations with, but I, like I saw this with uh, Tony from the old site and we both walked out of it like, Oh my God, I was so in love with that movie. It did a lot of things I didn't expect it to and was just really creative. It does what Vince, Vincenzo Natale does. He makes these movies inside a genre that you recognize and then subverts it and does odd things you wouldn't expect and has the characters deal in a realistic way with these things that get thrown in their path. Absolutely. And that's why we're giving away. Now, this is another cool thing. It's an IFC release, but it's on Blu-ray. Yay. Which is not something we always get from IFC. Yeah, they don't so, always do the Blu-rays. So we're very happy to be giving away a Blu-ray copy of Haunter. Now, as you know, the way our giveaways work is we do sort of a creative writing prompt via Twitter. So the first thing you're going to want to do is make sure you're following us on Twitter, at one of us net. And then what I want you to do this week is I want you to tweet at us, um, basically, who would be... Let me, I have this right here. And uh, blah, 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 blah. I have something written down. You here. had it. You had I it. I had it, and then it ghosted away from me. Uh, the <laughs> one movie character you would absolutely not want haunting your house. You shouldn't have had all those spirits before you recorded. I should not have had that many spirits, <laughs> but you tell me that all the time, and I just ignore you every week. <laughs> so, yeah, tweeted us the one movie character you would absolutely not want haunting your house. And keep in mind, this doesn't even have to be a, a character who died in a movie. Just what movie character's ghost would you not want? haunting your house and maybe a little bit of why but uh basically that's what we want to know and then just hashtag that haunter giveaway i'm just gonna say mine is kermit the frog because i would just be so sad every time i saw him that kermit the frog was dead it would be hard i would like just break down in tears every single time (laughs) (laughs) see that that's a good example of the kind of thing you can tweet at us right there and uh, hashtag that haunter giveaway we'll pick our favorite that person will win a blu-ray copy of haunter and that's it that's it. We did it. That's all we got. Which is good because this show is only like six hours late posting. Yeah. Unless <laughs> it is, it's over two hours long now. So. Oh, God. Oh, God. Just let it end, Chris. Sorry. There were a lot of titles. This was a week that had so many titles that 
I, even though you can see how many I actually watched, I only got halfway through the stack I actually had. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. <laughs> Jesus Christ. A lot of stuff. But, guys, we'll be back next week with even more titles. We hope you enjoy the show. Remember to follow us on Twitter. Uh, you can do that at the show at DigiNoiseCast, the website at One of OneOfUsNet, or individually, I'm at Salisbury. I'm at Chris Cox Critic. You can also like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash oneofusnet. And again, please do use those Amazon links. That uh, really is our bread and butter. We really appreciate it. And uh, until next time, thank you for joining us on this refrain of digital noise. Remember that no release is too big, no release is too small. From criterion to catastrophe, we review them all. <laughs>